Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. I don't remember feeling that angry, but I did uh, feel determined to uh, take this as an opportunity to let it be known that I did not want to be treated in that manner and that we as people had endured it far too long. However, I did not have at the moment of my arrest any idea of how the people would react. And since they reacted favorably, I was willing to um, go on with with their desires. Time now for StoryCorps. Today we remember the Reverend Farrell Duncombe, who died last week at 78. Duncombe grew up in the 1950s in Montgomery, Alabama, and became a teacher and a principal. He later became the pastor of the same church his father presided over. Duncombe recorded this StoryCorps interview in 2010. After Sunday school, our group of guys would always go down to the grocery store. I would get an upper 10 drink and a po' boy. Well, I remember once I decided to take it back to church. And I started unraveling the po' boy. And you know, at that time, they had cellophane paper. And it makes the loudest noise. And my mother looked from the choir stand that would take the wet out of water. And I pretended I didn't see her. My father was in the pulpit, and I had not noticed that he had stopped preaching. And next thing I know, he had come and he had had me by my collar and took me right outside the church. And we didn't have air conditioning. The windows was open, so you know everybody would be screaming and hollering out there. Of course, he went back and started preaching. But that taught me that I was being disrespectful not only towards my father, but towards others, those who wanted to listen, those who wanted to learn. I gained a lot of food for growth because it was our privilege to have been taught by some outstanding people like Miss Rosa Parks, who was my Sunday school teacher. We always called her Miss Rosa Lee. Why we call her Miss Rosa Lee, I never know. But this is before the boycott. This is before the civil rights movement. This was just Miss Rosa Lee. And she called me Little Pharaoh. Later on, when I was principal at Lanier High School, and it so happened at the time that Mrs. Parks was coming back to commemorate the bus boycott. Well, I really wanted her to come to my school. So I talked with her on the phone. She said, Farrell, is you? I said, yes, ma'am, Miss Rosalie. You're a principal? I said, yes, ma'am. Over school? I said, yes, ma'am. She said, Lord, I'm so happy because I didn't think you were going to be nothing. <laughs> You know, it's strange to get called out by the mother of civil rights. But at any rate, she agreed to come to my school. And I still have a, a picture on my desk now of us. That was a highlight of my life to 
walk with her into that auditorium of Sydney Lanier High School, which was a traditional white school, and I, the principal, walk in with Rosa Parks on my arm. I went outside at one point because I had tears in my eyes as I reflected upon this lady and the significance of what she was doing. These are the people that nurtured me. These are the people who saw me when I was still a little Pharaoh. And now I'm their pastor. And to walk into the pulpit and to stand behind the desk where my daddy stood, it's an awesome feeling. So I'm just humble. That was Reverend Farrell Duncombe. He died last week at the age of 78. His StoryCorps interview is archived at the Library of Congress. And then on the way to the locker room, somebody dumps popcorn on him. That's, That's unnecessary. Silly. That's unnecessary. Just throw the guy out. He should unnecessary. be an understatement. Yeah, but I'm just saying, just ban the dude. And right, yeah, Russell's hot. As you would expect. You see, y'all guys always get mad when I tell you what NBA rule I would change. Which one is that? I think you should be able to go up in the stands and beat the hell out of one person per game. You should. Yeah, I, I, I can't see why that didn't uh, take So hold. you don't think that guy deserved to get his ass beat right at center court? Yeah. You, <laughs> right we, at we, well, you look, yeah, he doesn't have to go into the stands. You just got to bring him down. That's my okay. point. Okay. You should be able to walk. Well, I'll you, tell you. you said that he should go in the stands. No, we okay, don't want okay. anybody well, going apologize. in the stands. We don't, we don't want a, a variety a pistol situation, but if, if a fan down. says something really, really rude or throws something on you, you may be able to say, come on down, like come Chuck Willie, where you say, bring it right down the half court, and y'all said it like men. I guess I should have expected it. Boston sports fans, finally back in their favorite game venues, excitedly revved up after more than a year of live events banned or restricted because of the pandemic. No re-entry cautiousness for most, it seemed. They enthusiastically demonstrated the yelling, cursing, and throwing behavior that has long been a staple of crowd conduct at Fenway Park and TD Garden. Probably why Celtics fan Cole Buckley felt completely comfortable tossing a water bottle at former Celtic, now Brooklyn Nets star Kyrie Irving. Don't call the same old normal the new normal. Surveillance video at the Garden showed the flying bottle narrowly missed Irving's head. During the game, fans booed and cursed when he took the floor, something he worried might happen when he spoke to reporters the week before. He said then he hoped he wouldn't be the subject of hostile catcalls and taunts. After the game and the bottle throwing, he talked about the underlying racism of the incident and added, just throwing things and treating people like they're in a human zoo, throwing stuff at people, saying things. This is not about one out-of-control fan, but about a pattern of behavior by numbers of mostly white fans targeting black athletes here in Boston and elsewhere. NBA player Russell Westbrook of the Washington Wizards was pelted with popcorn. Atlanta Hawks star Trey Young was spit on, and a fan in Washington, D.C.'s Capital One Arena rushed onto the basketball court during the game between the 76ers and the Wizards. A security guard tackled him before he could grab one of the players. 
More than 70% of NBA professionals are black, so it's hard to argue that the underlying racism Kyrie Irving pinpointed is not a part of the increasing attacks, perhaps because several players have spoken out in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. For the shut-up-and-dribble fans, that's a bridge too far. As far as they are concerned, the players are entertainers who are paid big bucks to perform, period. 21-year-old water bottle thrower Cole Buckley was arrested, charged with assault, and ordered by a judge to stay away from TD Garden. Suffolk County District Attorney Rachel Rollins, who attended his hearing, called his actions unprovoked workplace violence. Rollins also addressed the racial dynamics, saying, It is not lost on me that he chose to do this in a sport that is overwhelmingly black men. I hope the serious response to Buckley's actions is a deterrent for others attempted to unleash their pent-up animosity. But mostly, I'd like some acknowledgement that these racially motivated attacks are happening in the context of Boston's ongoing history of complaints from black players like Baltimore Orioles outfielder Adam Jones, playing in Fenway Park in 2017. Jones reported being assaulted with the N-word and a bag of peanuts. His complaint rang true to many black Bostonians who themselves have been victims of similar racist taunts. But then, as now, a lot of white Bostonians insisted it didn't happen. I wouldn't have thought that Danny Ainge, former Celtic-turned-team executive, would be one of them. But Ainge told 98.5 The Sports Hub, I have never heard any of that from any player I've ever played with for 26 years in Boston. Ainge, who abruptly resigned his position as president of basketball operations just days ago, added, As far as I'm concerned, it doesn't matter. We're just playing basketball. Except for players like Marcus Smart, LeBron James, and others who shared their lived experiences many times, it can't be just a game. If Ainge, who worked alongside African-American players for years, can't or won't hear them, what then? Given today's heightened racial tensions, I fear the throwing, spitting, and name-calling will continue until, as Portland guard Damian Lillard warns, they do it to the wrong guy and get what they want. Callie Crossley, GBH, Boston's local NPR. is trying to come to terms with its complicated racial past. Cities are taking down statues of Confederate generals. The Pentagon is changing the names of military bases that honor the Confederacy. Now, scientists are trying to find new names for more than 100 birds named after people. As WKSU's Jeff St. Clair reports, it's part of an effort to make birdwatching more inclusive. When early naturalists discovered a new bird, they often named it after a friend or colleague. There's Wilson's warbler and Swainson's warbler and Kirtland's warbler. Then you've got Nuttall's woodpecker and Casson's vireo, Casson's auklet. And you go off into the sparrows and there's Bottery's sparrow and Backman's sparrow. Ken Kaufman is the author of several birding field guides. 
We met at one of his favorite birding spots near Lake Erie. Hoffman, like many birders, hadn't paid much attention to the people behind the bird names. That is, until he learned more about that last guy. Backman was actually a Lutheran minister in South Carolina. Backman also fancied himself to be a scientist, and part of what he wrote about was just the idea that suggesting that whites were just naturally superior to members of other races. As justification for slavery. The American Ornithological Society, the group governing bird names, asked Kaufman to serve on a committee looking into how to change some or all of the names of the 149 North American birds named after people. Society President Mike Webster is committed to the idea. We want to and will change those bird names that need to be changed. He says last year, McCown's Longspur was renamed the Thick-Billed Longspur after it was noted that John McCown was a Confederate general. But Webster cautions that common names provide guidance for those navigating the scientific literature. And if you overnight changed the, the names of a court of the streets in a particular city, that would cause chaos. The name change movement is part of a growing awareness that bird watching needs to be more inclusive. I feel like it's a start. Nicole Jackson is a birder in Columbus, Ohio. She's one of the organizers of Black Birders Week, which was first held last year after a black birder was accosted by a white woman in Central Park. One goal is to highlight a shared interest in nature. Black people are in these spaces. We just need to talk about it more, and we need to feel like we have a, enough of a community for us to talk to each other and feel safe. Tyke James is a birder in Washington, D.C., and an organizer of Black Birders Week. As an activist in the birding community, I would say that I'm seeking to decolonize the birding experience. Names, James says, should say something about the birds themselves, like red-winged blackbird or yellow-bellied sapsucker, or their natural history. Not these glorifications of folks that would not want people like me birding today. Uh, they would be upset if the birding community was trying to decolonize. Birder Tyke James says science needs to be accountable to the present day, and the renaming is just a small part of that process. For NPR News, I'm Jeff St. Clair. To me, the thing, and, and I guess we'll go around the panel just talk about what will be the, your lingering memory of Ali. To me, I remember the last time I really had a, we were talking, and, you know, this, I was in this hotel room for some reason, and then Timothy said, uh, What's your, what's your name? So I, I kind of knew it. I said, um, Bill Rowe. He said, no, no. What's your real name? That's your slave name. <laughs> and so I just kind of laughed. But even then, it's like, he said, it's, it's about, I'm just keeping you in check, Mr. New York Times and Mr. Whoever here you are. What's your name? And sometimes even when I go into a Starbucks, and I say, your name, please. <laughs> and I'll say X. <laughs> I must admit, I'm really into names. Maybe because everywhere I go, many of the people I meet always ask me, where did you get that name? And then they answer their own question. I bet your father's name was Leon or Leonard. Ding, ding, ding. That's right. Leonard Inge. And when one prepares to part his or her lips to ask about my last name, Inge, they soon regret it. My daddy, Leonard Inge, told me to tell them, I have no idea who raped my great-great-great-grandmother. 
But I do know one of my great-great-grandmothers was named Kizzy. Many of us haven't said that name aloud since the 1970s when Alex Haley's Roots was televised. And then the coronavirus pandemic hit, and my ears perked up every time I heard someone say, Dr. Kizmikia Corbett, Dr. Kizzy for short, a black woman, a scientist who helped lead the development of the Moderna COVID-19 vaccine. And she's only 35. But Dr. Corbett explains in this interview with Black Enterprise, she's more than just a scientist. I am Christian. I'm black. I am Southern, um, although I've been in Maryland for <laughs> um, this time around for about six years. Um, I'm an empath. I, you know, I'm feisty, sassy, um, fashionable. That's kind of how I describe myself. And I would say that the, my role as a scientist is really about my passion and purpose for the world and for giving back to the world. Thanks, Dr. Kizzy. African-American names are as improvisational as jazz and as flavored as gumbo. I was reminded of that by Professor Trevon Logan, Associate Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at The Ohio State University and co-author of the article, The Antebellum Roots of Distinctively Black Names. One of the most interesting aspects of uh, emancipation is the fact that that was really the first time where the vast majority of African-American people had a surname. If you read letters from former enslavers, they were very upset that their former property was running around using their last name, right? And so they would say, you know, so Mr. Johnson, uh, <laughs> formerly Master Johnson, was writing to his friends, I cannot believe they're using my last name. And so one of these questions becomes, well, what else do you expect them to do, right? You've, you've taken their entire identity. They have belonged to you. And now what last name should they use? They wanted them to use anything else. They said, people would think that I'm related to them, but you are through this process <laughs> of enslavement. And so the surname issue is, I think, actually even more interesting. And I, and at the same time, under-investigated and researched I have a little brother who was born in the 70s. And, you know, when I think of the name, for example, Kizmikia or Dr. Kizzy, as so many people call her, of course, I think of roots, right? You know, you got a lot of names that actually were on TV during that famous miniseries, right? Did you think about that much, about even the the book and the movie Roots by Alex Haley, what that, how the role that it played, you know, on names for at least a while? Yeah, so, so the conventional wisdom certainly was that uh, beginning in the 1960s, the rise of the Black Power Movement, um, really the apex of the civil rights movement, the 20th century civil rights movement, came at a time in which African-American people were less willing to be assimilationist and much more wanting to be direct and wanting to really actually, in a sense, reclaim their African heritage. And so one way of doing that would be names. But one of the particular uh, questions and, and peculiarities of this is that the names that we now think of as being quote unquote black names, some of them, actually many of them, do not have explicit African origins. One of those things that I 
which will be discussed a little bit more about Black names and African-American names, is their inherent creativity. When it came time to name me, so I was born in the, in the late 70s. And so this was a time where you could, I guess, name your child some of anything. Um, my mother liked the name Trev Trevor, but not enough to name her son <laughs> Trevor. And so again, in a creative process, she just took off the R and put on an N and said, Trevon. And it's so strange to me that, you know, this literally is something that was just made up by, you know, my, my parents and they're deciding to name me. But I couldn't think of being anything else but Trevon at this point in my life, which is so strange to me to think about names, which is that this is just something that you're given in life, but that comes to define you. And I, I would be so offended if someone told me I couldn't have this name. Trevon Logan is a distinguished professor of economics and associate dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at The Ohio State University. I watched a white riot in Portland, Oregon on television the other night. <laughs> This is OPB. I'm Jeff Norcross. In Central Oregon, home sales are breaking new records, and as high prices force more buyers out of urban bend, sellers in still affordable towns are cashing out to meet demand. But as Emily Kiriton reports, one homeowner worries that racist symbols in her town could cost her. Buying a house in Prineville four years ago was supposed to be an investment in Marsha Hilber's retirement. It's like a little paradise right here, a little oasis in downtown Prineville. But what the 61-year-old real estate broker didn't count on was feeling embattled against her own neighbors. We all used to reside here just fine together. Then as the town saw local Black Lives Matter protests in 2020, Hilber says a divisive symbol also saw a revival. You can't miss it from her front porch. Well, it is uh, uh, an entire garage door painted as the Confederate flag. The Confederate battle flag was originally flown by an army that fought to preserve the enslavement of black Americans. And when this is in your face and people still live by this ideology, it just kind of scratches at that um, hereditary wound. Hilber is white, and she believes her own grandfather was once involved with the Ku Klux Klan, a white supremacist terror group once led by a Confederate general. So do I want to live the rest of my life and retire in a town where this is becoming more and more acceptable and more and more pronounced? Absolutely not. But for many younger buyers, affordable housing options are scant. Here's how real estate broker Christy Evans describes the market right now. Insane, crazy, bonkers. The average home price in Bend has gone up more than 40% since the pandemic began. If you don't have cash, it's tough. It's real tough. This trend worries Bend renters, like 28-year-old Margarita Podgorny. Where we started to, to look almost out of um, desperation, really. We're lucky to, to have stable housing now, but we weren't sure how long that would last. She and her husband have long been saving up for a down payment to buy their own home. The couple made around 20 offers, all of them rejected. Just when, when we feel like we're ready, it seems like, like the goalpost moved a mile, and, and now it's, we're kind of back to saving again. The competition for starter homes has driven other first-time buyers from Bend to Prineville. It comes with chickens, <laughs> so I have little chickens to look forward to. 
26-year-old Lorelai Garrity says she's also looking forward to living in a smaller, more close-knit community with a fraction of the population of Bend. She believes in neighbors helping neighbors. And solving problems without having to bring in forces like the police. Garrity is white and a supporter of the Black Lives Matter movement. So if my neighbor in Prineville hoisted the Confederate flag, um, I would really want to try to form some kind of relationship with that person. She grew up in Tennessee, a former slave state, and she's had conversations about the flag before. My, uh, my mom's brother, he's like the definition of a redneck in the best possible way. I mean, you know, I've got long hair and a beard and tattoos. This is Garrity's uncle, M.D. Kirkpatrick. I had a denim vest. The whole back of it was a rebel flag. The 58-year-old lives in Knoxville, Tennessee, and at one point in his life, he had all kinds of Confederate flag stuff. It just represented hate from the South, and I love the South, and I'm proud of it. But Kirkpatrick says he doesn't wear that vest or fly the rebel flag anymore. I grew up not associating slavery with what I thought of from the battle flag, and, and now I just know that you can't separate the two. They're one and the same. For Marcia Hilber, the home seller in Prineville, confronting her Oregon neighbors about the flag's pro-slavery history only seemed to make things worse. So there's this one, and then around the corner over here, there's another Confederate flag that just went up. She worried these racist symbols would lead to a financial hit. Uh, this could have a real effect on property values, you know, depending on my buyers are, or it could take longer for me to sell my house. But when Hilber recently listed the place, the flags didn't seem to deter buyers. She got multiple offers over the asking price on the very first day. Emily Curitan, OPB. This time I'm walking to New Orleans. I'm walking to New In bygone days, New Orleanians would spend summers cooling down at one of two beaches on Lake Pontchartrain. Now the city is working to reopen one of them. For many years, the beaches were segregated, and when the White Beach Pontchartrain was integrated, both fell into disrepair due to racism and lack of investment. As Tegan Wendland reports, plans are in the works to reopen the former Black Beach, Lincoln Beach, in the east. Well, I just pulled over on Hain Boulevard and parked on the side of the road, and this is Lincoln Beach. There used to be, I suppose, a main entrance and all sorts of amenities, bathrooms, rides, a beautiful swimming pool. Um, now you have to jump over this fence and cross over the railroad tracks, which we're about to do. I got my little dog with me. Come on, Bobby. Okay, wait for me. Cross over Hain Boulevard. I'm gonna climb up this levee. Okay, let's see. A big sign that says caution. No fishing, no trespassing, no hunting, no camping, no motor vehicles. Okay, don't tell Mayor Cantrell I came out here. Let's see, there's supposed to be a ladder over here. Okay, there's the ladder. Okay, climbing over this fence. Go down this little rickety ladder. It's just totally overgrown, like just some big woods. We're gonna go in this little 
pathway. Wait for me, Bobby. Ooh, it's wet. Wow, there's a lot of water. Hope there's no snakes. All right, I guess we have to walk through this big old puddle. Oh, Bobby. <laughs> hey, are you Sage? Nice to meet you. I'm Tegan. Sage Michael helped start the group New Orleans for Lincoln Beach, and he's been informally cleaning it up for more than a year with the help of volunteers. They pick up trash, set up tables and benches they build out of wooden pallets, monitor the place, and try to keep people safe. We're just standing on ground that we cleaned up been over a year ago, and um, we're almost celebrating a year now, and I appreciate everybody coming out here and joining and, and keeping it the, the safest place in New Orleans. It's a pretty typical weekend out here. Families are playing music, grilling out under the trees while the kids splash around in the water. Oh, que paso, amigo. Doing the interview, bro. Y'all, go, y'all are in it. <laughs> we got my man sitting on the bench that my partner Reggie Ford made. Oh, okay. He got his family out uh, in the water, just soaking up the water. Having fun? Into the having fun on the left. You got a dog. We got a blanket out, cameras out. And then you got another, uh, look like a fall in the dog out here getting the kite on. Technically, this whole scene could be considered trespassing. The beach has been closed for decades, and the city doesn't want people out here. But they come anyway. For Michael, the site's about a lot more than a beach. It's like it was built because fear. Fear that black people would recreate around white people. That fear made them create policies and create this place. Because of their fears, they, they disenfranchised my people from enjoying the American dream who fought for freedom, justice, equality. Back in the day, this beach had a roller coaster, pools, tons of live music. Black folks took buses and drove from all over town to come out here and enjoy the sun because they weren't allowed on the white beach. There's so much spirit here that everybody wanted a piece of the spirit. This is the best place on the lake. He wants to see the beach opened back up wildlife trails, preserving the existing historic structures, event space, vendors, pools, camping, all run by the local community. We could give different type, all type of tours, historical tours, we could give um, you know, nature tours, um, all those tours. New Orleans for Lincoln Beach has succeeded in getting the city's attention. Mayor Latoya Cantrell came out to see it, sent staff to help with the cleanup, and assigned the project to the acting deputy chief of staff of the Department of Public Works, Sharon Robles. Right now, if you're going to the lakefront, you have to go in a levee, and you can maybe go down some stairs, but there's not really ways to get into the water very safely, at least from the south shore. But Lincoln Beach is that access. While she appreciates people like Michael cleaning up the beach, she says it's not safe to go out there right now, and that in order to reopen it, there's a process. Assess the beach, check. Make a plan and figure out how much money they need to make it safe and accessible, check. And get the money, TBD. To just open the site, we need about $10 million dollars. We don't have $10 million yet. That's how much it would take just to open it, not build all sorts of amenities. She says the city's using some bond money and applying for funds from the state. The city's also created a community advisory committee to help with the planning. Trisha Bliss-Wallace is an activist and a member of the committee. When I first started doing this, everybody thought I was crazy. (laughs) But as I was talking to my family, you know, my grandmother was just, she just lit up. Her grandmother has fond childhood memories of Lincoln Beach. I mean, she started pulling out pictures and just talking about how they used to come there all the time. And it just generated some great memories for them, um, for the entire family. And um, she talked about seeing Fats Domino and Irma Thomas and all these people. She says most of her neighbors in the East are on board. More than 50 people attended their last Zoom meeting. Many just want to know when the beach will be open. It's going to be a couple years. She's hoping for a no-frills plan with as little development as possible and lots of opportunities for kids to learn about nature and jump in the water. 
and she's hoping it'll open in time for her grandma to go back and visit one last time. In New Orleans East, I'm Tegan Wensland. Weddings are now allowed in Washington with as many vaccinated adults as you want under current rules. That's after a year of strict COVID protocols and restrictions on the number of guests. Big social gatherings like weddings are known to be among the most dangerous places for spreading COVID. This next story traces how a wedding last summer in Kent became a COVID super spreader, amplifying an outbreak among homes for adults with disabilities. KUOW's Anna Boyko-Wyrock reports how it happened. It was a fantastic wedding, by the looks of it. And now, by the power that is vested in me. At Christ the King Anglican Church in Kent in late July. A husband and a wife. A video was posted publicly on YouTube. Zipporah Mina was at the wedding, helping the couple cut the cake. She's from Kenya originally, like a lot of the guests. In my culture, we celebrate weddings a lot, so there was a lot of dancing, there was a lot of singing, there was a lot of um, joy. The whole thing lasted for hours. The ceremony was inside with a few small windows open. People were crowded together, like this moment at the altar when church leaders prayed for protection for the new couple. They all wore masks around their chins, and their noses and mouths were exposed. The event did not follow public health restrictions at the time about mask wearing and social distancing. The video shows around 70 people at the reception eating dinner and making toasts with their masks off. Where we were sitting, I recall, shoulder to shoulder, if I stretched my arm, definitely I would touch the person next to me. At least 10 people got COVID from the wedding, including the groom and Mina. About a week later, she had symptoms. Every time I would cough, my chest would feel so much pain. Within days, she says she was in the intensive care unit with pneumonia from COVID. Mina got worse and worse. A few weeks after she was admitted to the hospital, she sat up in bed for the first time. She sent friends a video. Just keep praying for me. I love you so much, and I miss you. Meanwhile, the virus continued its path. From guests at the wedding, to their homes, and to their jobs, many worked in health care and showed up contagious, whether they had symptoms or not. The wedding was connected to COVID in over 40 health care facilities and close to 300 people. One place was Bethesda Lutheran Communities, which cares for adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Local director Zola Sheehan says staff told her they got COVID from their other jobs. And that's something really key to understanding this outbreak. Caregivers for adults with disabilities often have two or three jobs. They basically have to. We pay very, very little. Sheehan says it's an industry-wide problem. There's just not enough state funding. And that's why Sheehan was not angry with the staff for bringing COVID into the facility. I was angry that the industry required staff to have more than one job. But when you get right down to it, you do what you have to do. Joseph Chiodere is a caregiver at another agency, Integrated Living Services. He has two jobs and works 12-hour shifts six days a week. I need to save some money so that I can go back to school, so that I can be a nurse. That's why I sacrifice myself. 
Kyorere heard about the wedding last July, linked to the outbreak, but he did not go. Still, he felt the effects anyway. A dozen people at his job got COVID, including one resident he cares for, an older man with autism who cannot speak. Kyorere stayed with the man in quarantine and slept on an air mattress on the living room floor so he could care for him. Because I myself, I can take care of myself. What about them? Kyorere wore protective gear and didn't get COVID. At one point, the resident was hospitalized on a ventilator. Kyorere visited him. Oh, it was so emotional to me because I have worked for him like three years. When I go and see him, I was not feeling good. The man survived. But overall, 15 other people died from the wedding outbreak. Joseph Emanuel is the executive director of Integrated Living Services. He says another thing to consider is that the stigma of a positive COVID case also helped the virus spread. Staff wouldn't tell managers they were exposed. Emanuel says revealing your status could mean losing your roommates, who you need to split rent, or even your entire support network. You're going to be left alone. You may not be able to leave. And especially in the African community, <laughs> when you can't have a friend, I mean, where are you going to go and find somebody else? You don't have a family member. Most people don't have a lot of family members here. That stigma was very real for Zipporah Mina, who got COVID at that wedding last July. Even after getting out of hospital, after being in 40 days and recovering, <laughs> people still felt like I was infectious. So they didn't want to come see me. And Mina needed help with everything, from walking to bathing. Mina's health has still not recovered. She can't cook and wash dishes at the same time, for example. If I'm not cautious and I do them the way that I have always done, within a very short time, I'm tired. I want to sit down. Despite the stigma, she's been outspoken. I don't want anybody to, <laughs> to get this thing, man. It's terrible. And also when I look at the statistics of how many people have passed on, I just realize how blessed I am to be alive today. A few friends did help her. A lot. She's thankful to them. And the pastor of the church where that wedding took place held a major fundraiser for her medical and living expenses. Anna Boyko Wyrock, KUOW News. June 15th, that's a week from today, not only marks the big reopening of California, it's also the deadline for lawmakers to pass the budget. Now, right now it's being hashed out in Sacramento. And last week, a group of Democratic senators threw a few additional proposals into the mix to help make home ownership more affordable and attainable for all. The ultimate goal being to reduce the growing wealth gap in the state that has hurt mostly residents of color. Now, for more on that gap and whether policies laid out in the California Dream for All plan can actually help, we turn to Andre Perry, senior fellow with the Brookings Metropolitan Policy Program. He's also author of uh, Know Your Price, Valuing Black Lives and Property in America's Black Cities. Andre, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Sure, sure. All right, just to set a baseline, can you break down the numbers on home ownership in the U.S.? Uh, black home ownership versus Latino versus white. Yeah, we in, in California, you generally see about seventy-five percent of white homeowners owning their their homes, compared to about um, um, forty to thirty-nine percent for blacks, about forty-three percent for Latinos. Um, it's a it's a big gap, and, it, and it's accentuated um, in particular areas of California. So when you're talking about um, the the Bay, it, it worsens. 
Um, when you're talking about Los Angeles County, it's, it's heightened. And so, but overall, there's a big discrepancy between black Latinos and whites. Does California look generally like the rest of the nation on that? Oh yeah. It, it generally mirrors the rest of the country. The, di- the difference is it is a lot harder to get into the housing market in California. Many people know um, it's, it's simply out of reach um, to, you know, in, in home average home prices can, can be well over $400,000, $500,000. Um, certainly in the Bay, it can be uh, higher than that. And so if you are working as a teacher, it can be very difficult to own a home, to, to own a home in the area in which you work. And so that's why um, states and local municipalities are really trying to figure out ways to, to support um, um, home ownership in during this time. Yeah, it's a really California home ownership under is like a being in line at a nightclub that you know you're never going to get into. You're just standing there waiting and hoping and and it uh, never happens. Now here in LA there's uh, long been institutional barriers to home ownership for people of color and also for Jewish people as well that uh, kept them out of certain neighborhoods. But even after housing covenants were struck down in the 60s they persisted. So Andre, can you tell us a little bit about the key challenges that existed there? Yeah, and a lot of people have been bringing up this history um, certainly after the Tulsa massacre, we're learning a lot about um, the sordid racial history around redlining, around racial housing covenants, around um, antagonistic uh, communities and governments really trying to um, um, uh, reduce the uh, affordability to get rid of black people in these neighborhoods. And so we know that the federally backed homeowners loan corporation for years um, redlined areas. And then even in areas where there wasn't official redlining, there were these racial housing covenants. And, and remember, black and Jewish people generally lived t- together in a lot of these areas. And they were, you know, shunned um, from the rest of the community. And so they just made as, as conditions as difficult as possible, not allowing for refinancing loans, not allowing for down payment assistance. Um, and they were unable and black and Jewish people couldn't move in the other areas because yeah. of these racial housing covenants. So it really throttled um, wealth. And and for black people in particular, um, black people couldn't change their name. They couldn't move to other areas because all throughout the country, there were these racial covenants. And so um, you could move, but it would be like jumping out of the, the frying pan and into yeah. a fire in the in the fire. You know, you mentioned black and Jewish people living in, in the same neighborhoods. Uh, I, I, I never forget seeing pictures of uh, the Brooklyn Dodgers, Ebbets Field, back uh, in the 50s. Uh, and you'd see pictures of the crowd and they'd be black and Jewish people leaving the stadium but and, and walking back to their to their neighborhood right there in Brooklyn. So, yeah, th- that was one example of, of, of blacks and Jews working, actually living together in those same areas. Now, in the book, and that, you, you know, yeah. and- and people always forget about there. There is still this connection in terms of civil rights um, that really came about because black and Jewish people um, lived together, worked together, rallied together. And so when we're talking about um, housing equity, um, you, this is a long history of black and Jewish people working together for justice um, around this issue. Now, in your book, you write about the, the uh, deliberate devaluation of black communities for those uh, black and brown families who do own homes. What has prevented those families from building the kind of wealth over the years that white homeowners have? 
Yeah, my research, um, we compared black neighborhoods to white neighborhoods where the share of the black population is 50 percent and compared those to areas where the black population is less than a percent. And we control for education, crime, walkability, all those fancy Zillow metrics. And we found that homes in black neighborhoods are underpriced about 23 percent, about 48,000 per home. Um, and uh, cumulatively, that's about $156 billion in lost equity. In, in Los Angeles, for instance, there's a 17% difference, about 70000 per home. Now, um, there's a way to interpret my data that, that when the people in the housing market and, in, in, and throughout other markets look at black neighborhoods, they see twice as much crime than there actually is. They see worse education than there actually is. The, the sort of um, pejorative perceptions of black neighborhood comes out of the wash in housing prices. So when it comes to getting a loan, when it comes to getting your house appraised, um, the, that subjectivity is, is fraught with all kind of racial bias and it reduces the value of, of homes. And we, and, and we know that throughout the news, we've seen these horrible stories of black homeowners um, getting white stand-ins in order um, wow. to get a, a higher appraisal. And so we, we shouldn't have white saviors to get value on our homes because when you don't get value, what that essentially does, it's robbing you of tuition. It's robbing yeah. you of the opportunity to start a business. It's a, it's a big deal. A quote-unquote bad neighborhood, right? I mean, that's no one wants to buy in a bad neighborhood. That's the old uh, line there. We're talking to Andre Perry, the Brookings Institution, author of you Know Your Price, Valuing Black Lives and Property in America's Black Cities. All right, let's, let's get to solutions. I mentioned up top this California Dream for All plan proposed by state lawmakers. Now, under the plan, the state would get a 45% ownership of a house, reducing the price for potential buyers by almost half. Uh, so, Andre, what do you think? I mean, is this the right approach to boosting home ownership and closing that uh, wealth gap? Yeah, I think there has to be some type of subs, uh, subsidizing of homes because because the black folks don't have the wealth and we uh, essentially are locked out of the job market in key areas, we simply don't have the buy, buying power. So you would like to see some type of subsidizing of, of, of home ownership. Remember, during the 30s, the way that people built wealth was the, the federal government created it through the New Deal, created policies that would um, give families, not black ones, um, the um, low uh, finance, refinancing loans, down payment assistance, and, and white families were able to buy homes, start new communities, build wealth. So we can do that same thing. The, 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 what's problematic with this policy is it, it looks as if the, the state is going to own half the home, so to speak. And we know that that's fraught with error because um, many municipalities and states essentially tried to rob pe black people of land in the past, yeah. take their homes through eminent domain and other, I mean, Bruce Beach in, in LA County, for instance, that was an example of what local and state municipalities have done in the past to, to steal land from black but people. But isn't, isn't so, 55% better than nothing? It opens a door, doesn't it? It gets a foot in a door. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I said, Hey, I, I want novel ideas. We, there needs to be some cooperative sort of program 
to enable low wealth individuals from um, to buy homes. And so um, we should just watch carefully um, as this what I considered a reparative sort of policy, repairing the damage of past discrimination. Mm -hmm. And we can call it reparations. We can call it, you know, subsidies, whatever. But there needs to be some effort to enable a black or people who've been victimized by past policies to own a home. So it's it's a novel idea. We should look at it carefully. Um, but you know, it's 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 a it's a step in the right direction. I can hear I can hear your arms folded under like I don't know about it, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, yeah. the government just has a sordid history with black people. Yeah, yeah. And so we can't just take it for granted that this is a good thing. That's Andre Perry, the Brookings Institution, also author of Know Your Price, Valuing Black Lives and Property in America's Black Cities. Andre, thanks a lot. Hey, thanks for having me. You're dirt. We think you're dirt, Paul. Who is we? The West. All the superpowers, everything you believe in, Paul. They think you're dirt. They think you're dumb. You're worthless. I'm afraid I don't understand what you are saying, sir. Oh, come on. Don't bullshit me, Paul. You're the smartest man here. You got them all eating out of your hands. You could own this freaking hotel, except for one thing. You're black. You're not even a nigger. You're an African. As we reported earlier, President Biden is expected to announce tomorrow that the U.S. will purchase 500 million more doses of COVID vaccines that will be donated to the world's poorest countries and the African Union. This announcement comes as leaders in the private sector are stepping up their efforts to aid in the pandemic response. Amna Nawaz explains. In one of the largest private sector donations of its kind, the MasterCard Foundation announced today they'll give $1.3 billion over the next three years to vaccinate 50 million people on the continent of Africa. Fewer than 2% of the people who live in Africa have gotten a single dose of the vaccine yet. That's far lower than many of the wealthiest countries and well below the global average of 11%. Ajay Banga is the executive chairman of MasterCard, and he joins me now. Ajay, welcome to the news hour, and thank you for making the time. One $1.3 billion. It's one of the largest private gifts in the entire pandemic. Why this much and why now? First of all, thank you for having me. Uh, the, uh, but the fact is that this, this whole pandemic is something that we've all got to put our shoulder to the wheel at. It's not enough to say that governments will fix it. It's not enough to say that somebody else will do it or some other company will or some other foundation will. And so we're all trying to do our best. And there are lots of governments and companies that are doing their best. And the foundation is an independent foundation. It was created at our IPO and runs independently. They have our name, and we are the only donor. And I'm very proud of their CEO and their chair on this decision. So basically, the idea is that they work in Africa. They help to do economic development in Africa. And how can you have economic development in a continent which hasn't yet got vaccinations? For a citizenry. So the objective here is to kickstart the process with a large enough donation to get 50 million people vaccinated, but also to build infrastructure and capabilities and training through the African CDC and the African Union for this to become a real operational opportunity. 
Let me ask you about some of the activity you've taken in Central America, though, because this is something that's very central to the Biden administration's efforts there. Vice President Harris is wrapping up a trip to the region. She's there on a mission to try to address the root causes, causing people to flee in the first place to address irregular migration. MasterCard's made a commitment to invest in the region. Why? Why do you, what do you see as MasterCard's role in this part of the administration's efforts? Sam, I think that no company grows when the communities around it are not successful and growing. The same idea applies to the Northern Triangle. When the administration said, we want to find a way to help people stay where they are, I'm not somebody who can open a manufacturing factory or an export factory from there, but I can help in the distribution of aid digitally and reduce some of the corruption and leakage that happens through normal aid distribution. And that's the idea of saying... We'll help 5 million people come into the financial mainstream in the Northern Triangle and help a million SMEs get digitally enabled. That's the starting point of the commitment to the vice president's effort. I want to get your take on where we are right now in the U.S. in terms of the economic recovery, because last year you said you were worried about what people call a K-shaped recovery, that the inequality gaps that persisted in the pandemic would continue to get wider. Based on what you've seen so far, are you still worried about that? Yes, I am. I will say that I am very optimistic in general about the state of the U.S. economy. I believe that the package of measures that the system has put into place from monetary and fiscal policy, as well as all the things that I see underlying in the economy, are very constructive. But the problem is, overall, U.S. GDP will do well, but we've got to worry about those that are getting left behind. And we know that during the pandemic, women-owned businesses, minority-owned businesses, Women and minorities in jobs suffer disproportionately compared to others. And we know that the digital divide exists, right? Now, just to be clear, the pandemic didn't suddenly create all this. This is, it's exposed issues in our society that have existed for a while. And I think we need to build back better. We need to do this better. And just in case the digital divide, which is where the K-shaped recovery idea comes from, the digital divide will actually make it worse, right? If you can't get access to broadband or infrastructure of that type, whether you're an SME or a student, that's not a great place to be. It's the same for the unequal spread of vaccinations across the world between some developed markets and other developing countries. And that's one of the reasons why the MasterCard Foundation made this commitment. So it's kind of all intertwined. The idea of we're in it together, and if we're going to come out of it, we're going to have to come out of it together. This beast is going to need your shoulder and my shoulder at the wheel. Well, you mentioned some of those gaps. The White House will argue that one of the ways to close those gaps is with these big spending plans they're proposing, like the infrastructure package. And they say as part of that, that companies like yours should pay higher taxes to help pay for them. Do you agree with that? Yeah, well, listen, we benefited when the taxes came down. We put a lot of the money we got from those tax breaks into our philanthropy as well as into our employees for 401k matches of a much higher level. One of the facts that people don't know about us is if you put in 6% into your 401k in our company, we match you 10, meaning you get 16. That's one of the fewest, one of the rarest examples of that kind of effort. We did that with the tax savings. If taxes go back up, that's policy. We've got to learn how to live with it and play with it. My real response here is it's actually about competitiveness. So if you need to fix the taxes at a level that you think makes sense for what the government's revenue should be, go ahead and do that. Make sure we're all competitive because global multinationals have got an opportunity to keep growing and doing good things for the American population and the American system. But we can't if we're uncompetitive. That's all. So make it competitive and we have to carry our share. I don't have a problem 
with a tax rate that is higher than where we are today, so long as I understand and appreciate that it's competitively introduced. There's another key issue I want to get your take on, which is the string of high-profile cyber attacks that we've seen, these ransomware attacks, how quickly and dramatically they have brought parts of American life to an absolute standstill in the global banking world right now. How secure are financial services? How worried are you about MasterCard being hacked? Well, you know, I've been involved in cybersecurity for a while, both at the company but also at different presidential commissions. And I will tell you that I've been making a case that we're only as strong as our weakest link. Now, MasterCard's been one of those beneficiaries of people trying to get at us for a long time, and we have built fairly strong processes, and so have most of the financial services industry. And now, where we are today, the financial services industry works very closely across the industry, but also with government. And so I think you'll find that America's financial services industry is in relatively good shape. But remember, you're only as strong as your weakest link. So think about all the supply chain that interacts with financial services or any company for that matter. If those supply chain is not as strong as it needs to be, you expose yourself to weakness. So, you know, cybersecurity is a real issue. And no single company can fight off nation states or very large organized criminal gangs beyond a point. And so I think we're in this together, a bit like the pandemic. Cyber is also a pandemic of a different type. And we need to just put our shoulder to the wheel together across industry, across industry and government. This is a place where the hackneyed words of public-private partnership actually mean a great deal. Ajay Banga is the executive chairman of MasterCard. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Now, look at this. I'm saying that once you start talking about genetic survival, we're getting into the white supremacy mindset. You've got to understand what is in the white supremacy mindset. You cannot impose. See, we want to impose. Everybody wants to get along. That's not where they're coming from. See, they're coming from white genetic survival by any means necessary. Now, how do I assure my genetic survival? What exactly do I have to do? The decline in the number of babies being born in much of Europe has been hastened by the pandemic as couples' finances have already been squeezed and the number of divorces have surged. In Italy, which has the world's second oldest population, it's particularly marked, with births dropping to their lowest rate in 160 years. The most acute problem is on the island of Sardinia, from where our Italy correspondent Mark Lowen sent this report. It's not exactly a morning rush at Gadoni School in Sardinia. Of its 25 pupils, different year groups are together in the same class because, well, there just aren't enough of them. The 11 to 14-year-olds learn about the life they're leading in a lesson about depopulation. With deaths in Italy far outnumbering births, the country lost over 380,000 people last year, equivalent to a city the size of Florence. And the birth rate is the lowest since its unification in 1861. 
With no births in Gadoni last year and none anticipated, headteacher Rafaela Sakako feels desperate. We've fought against the school's closure for years, but I'm worried it'll happen soon. The pandemic has accelerated the problem. There's just a profusion of wild flowers up here above the little Sardinian town of Mamoyada and rows of vines where Michaela Pisano now works with her fiancé Pino Cadino since her bar closed with the Covid lockdown last year. And with financial problems, they've had to put off their plans to have children. It's very hard when you want to have a child but don't feel able to because of uncertainty about your future. Things are so insecure that if I find work, then fall pregnant and maybe lose my job, it would be unmanageable. In my mother's generation, you could work and have a family. For ours, it's impossible. At the nearby maternity ward, there are just two rather hungry newborns surrounded by empty cribs. It may be closed down as not enough babies are born here, though a new government plan financed by EU Covid recovery funds will invest in maternity wards, nurseries and child benefits. It's needed nowhere more than Sardinia, which has both Italy's lowest birth rate and one of the world's longest life expectancies. But there is another side to this story, which you find in places like this, a tiny hamlet called Lolove, population just 13. But the pandemic is bringing many Italians who had moved abroad back home. It's thought that up to 100,000 Italians have come back since the start of Covid, some to be with families, others just to work from home. We are in a medieval village where you can disconnect your life. Simone Ciferni went off to study in Britain and work in South Africa, but has now come back to Lolove to start a little hotel and farm. That's the only way to save this hamlet. Just in Italy, we have more than 5,000 villages like Lolove that can disappear in the next 10 years. So we need to discover the world, but then we need to come back. From big city life abroad to the Sardinian farm, it's a big change. But critical times call for radical measures. The demographic crisis here and in much of Europe could endanger future economic growth, public services and pension systems, with Italy particularly vulnerable. It is now a race against time to boost births of a human kind. <laughs> Mark Lowy. Billy Holiday, I sing your blues. Bet your life against me, and I swear to God you lose it. Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. When you don't vote, you can't sit on a jury. You have no right to complain about the police because you won't even go and vote so you can even sit on a jury. Uh, as I've told, uh, said to the cows when I first start to call in. I spent 11 years on a job where where I worked for a bank and had to sit in court day after day, day after day after day. And I watched them select juries. I watched black people going to jail. Black people have white having white probation officers. And the whole judicial system um, just truncated with white supremacy. 
and a great deal of it is going to could some of it could be lessened if black people simply voted. In the recent paper you wrote about this, you quoted the Illinois Court of Appeals where they lamented, quote, the charade that has become the Batson process where prosecutors have a, quote, series of pat race-neutral reasons for exercise of peremptory challenges. People have figured out how to game this system. Do you think this is just a charade at this point? I, I think the standard that Batson set out where it has to be the reason and, and not what an objective observer would say um, is just it's it's a bad standard. I'm Sarah Fenske. Earlier this week, the criminal trial of a pair of former St. Louis cops began in downtown St. Louis again. And again, the judge impaneled an all-white jury. Former officers Dustin Boone and Christopher Myers are charged with beating a colleague who is working undercover. The jury deadlocked on the first trial. The officers are white, and the detective that they beat is black. Their, in, their guilt or innocence will be decided by a jury of 12 white peers. That's even though federal law has barred race-based discrimination since 1875. And joining us today to explain how we got here and why is Peter Joy. He's the Henry Hitchcock Professor of Law and Director of the Criminal Justice Clinic at Washington University School of Law. Peter, welcome. Uh, thank you. It's a pleasure being here. So, Peter, a lot of people were surprised when a first all-white jury was seated in this case a few months ago. And then it happened again this week. Did that come as a surprise to you? Yeah, I wish I could say it did, but it really didn't. Um, I was called out for federal court jury duty in 2015. And I looked around the room of the jury pool, and I think I counted three people of color in the entire room of about 50 potential jurors. And uh, so if you start with a jury pool that has very few people of color, you can oftentimes end up with an all-white jury. So people who don't know as much about how our court system works here, they might be surprised. St. Louis City itself obviously has a much different racial composition. What's all covered by the federal court here? Well, it, it's the Eastern District of Missouri. Missouri. So it uh, you know, basically goes over to the river and then it goes north. I, I think it may go uh, as far as Hannibal. Uh, and then it goes south, and it goes pretty far south. So we're talking about a big area, and you're right, there's the city of St. Louis, which is very diverse. You have a couple pockets of diversity in St. Louis County, but there's not a whole lot of diversity throughout the entire district. So this jury, the bigger pool, comes in relatively white to begin with, and then uh, defense attorneys were able to strike some of the black jurors. Tell us well, how this works. Actually, there's one step before you even get to the jury people who show up, which is all of the summonses to show up for jury duty that people don't respond to. You get a jury questionnaire, and if you don't turn it in, and I, you know, I don't know that there's ever been a study in the Eastern District of Missouri, but they've done studies in the Chicago area and the Detroit area, and they find that uh, about somewhere around 20 to 30 percent uh, the summonses don't even reach people who live in low-income areas, and that's because people who are low-income often move around quite a bit, and so they don't get delivered. And when they do get delivered, if you don't have a job where you're going to get a day's pay for being on a jury, instead you get the 10 or $15 that you're going to get there, you know, a lot of people say, I, I have to feed my family, so I'm just not going to show up. So, 
you know, you, you start with what is not quite a diverse group to begin with, and then it really gets diluted by all the uh, summonses that can't get delivered in all of the questionnaires that people just don't return. Hmm. I, I wasn't even thinking about that step, but yeah, so that <laughs> changes then the pool of people in the room. Once you get them into the room, that's when the attorneys on both sides start to uh, exercise their freedoms here. How do they get rid of jurors once they're in that room? Right. Well, there are two ways. One way is for cause. That is, the person can't be fair. And, and most of the time, through questioning, if you're going to strike somebody from, for cause, you basically have to get them to say, well, I'm not sure if I can be fair. And, and there are ways of doing that. Uh, you know, so, for example, um, it might be somebody who is the victim of a terrible crime, and they're sitting potentially to be a juror in a criminal case, and they might you know, have a hard time. Or in a case like this, it could be somebody who uh, maybe they had uh, bad encounters with the police in the past. Sure. Uh, and so they have reservations. But after you deal with the four cause strikes, there are peremptory strikes, which are strikes that you could do for any reason, as long as under the U.S. Constitution, as it's been interpreted by the Supreme Court, that the motivation isn't racially motivated. But that has to be the reason. Not a contributing reason has to be the primary reason. So it's easy to come up with excuses that sound like it's not race-based. Uh, I, I want to point out that there are some states where the state uh, Supreme Courts have interpreted for state court cases a different standard, which is would a reasonable person think one of the factors was race-based? And that totally changes the dynamic of jury selection. I bet, but that is not the standard in federal court. Uh, not in federal court, not in Missouri, and not in a majority of the states for state court cases. And so race is the one factor that you can't just strike people for. You could just strike somebody for being a man. You don't have to try uh, well, to couch uh, that uh, in something else. Well, actually, gender has fallen into it, religion. Um, you know, so basically, if you think about the typical uh, classes where, of, of discrimination, those are going to be areas you have to steer away from. So defense attorney Scott Rosenblum, he's one of the top defense attorneys in town. He knows how to play this game. He said that, you know, he's getting some heat for striking black jurors. He noted that prosecutors move to strike most of the jurors who are coming from outside the metro area because these people are more likely to be conservative, more likely to be law and order. Uh, can prosecutors do that? Yeah, I mean, actually, you know, striking somebody because you think that they're likely to be more conservative or more liberal, that's perfectly okay. Um, you know, you, you can strike people because you don't like the color of their eyes. <laughs> that's going to be okay. Wow. Okay. So there's a lot of reasons you could strike people. What happens, though, if the other side starts to suspect, hey, they're actually doing this for reasons of race? Right. Well, they raise what's called a Batson objection. And, and then, you know, there's a sidebar with the judge. And they, uh, you, you say, Your Honor, I believe uh, this strike, uh, peremptory strike has been racially motivated. And then the burden shifts to the person who's did it to justify it. And then they give the reasons. And then the trial judge makes a decision. So uh, if they gave a reason, like, I don't like the eye color, they could be in some hot water there. Yeah, if, if, if that was the reason, especially because then, you know, if 
it goes back to the person who raised the Batson objection. They go, well, Your Honor, there are eight more potential jurors that have the same color eye. You know, why aren't they being? You know, and, and so some of the reasons that, that have been used both by prosecutors and defense lawyers, but mostly by prosecutors when it comes to Batson is, well, the person's too old or the person's too young or the person lives in a high crime area or the person, you know, so there are all these lists. But then, you know, you, you have to really have something, I think, a little bit more particularized to justify it for the judge. But the judge still has a lot of discretion. So in this case, uh, Scott Rosenblum, the defense attorney, he struck somebody because uh, their cousin was in prison and he was still in touch with this aunt as, as she was dealing with the sadness of having this cousin incarcerated. This is something that the judge let in. Does does that make sense? To, uh, let him go ahead and strike that yeah. juror. Well, well, if it, you know, under Batson, uh, you know, that that would be a, a justifiable reason because you could say, well, you, you know, as long as there weren't, say, white jurors who had the same situation that the defense lawyer uh, didn't strike. Um, so because it has to be the reason, not a contributing reason, uh, you know, I, 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 you know, I really went and second-guessed the judge. Okay. So the judge may well have made the right call on this, but there's still an impact that comes. Yeah. I mean, we have a pool that has very few black jurors. Those black jurors are getting struck. Uh, what have you found out as, as you've mm -hmm. studied this about racial discrimination in juries? Okay. Well, you know, a lot of districts uh, in, in state courts have been a lot more aggressive about getting diverse jury uh, panels to begin with. So they've done studies. Uh, there have been instances where some federal judges looking out and seeing that, gosh, I'm going to end up with an all-white jury, has adjourned the case for a couple days to bring in more prospective jurors. And that's definitely within a district court judge's uh, ability. And so, you know, a lot of judges uh, are are getting more attuned to this. And, and some, so some judges, federal court judges, are taking a look at, well, we're getting a really low response rate, say, for, for people in the city of Chicago or Detroit. And then what they did is they examined why is that and what can we do to remedy that, to make the addresses better, to try to track down and make sure people get the summonses to begin with. So the judges do have the ability. Now, a lot of these programs have been because all the judges in the, you know, in, in the district have agreed on it. But an individual federal judge has that authority if the judge wants to do it. Interesting. Are you aware of any programs here in the Eastern District of Missouri where they've been trying to work on this? Um, you know, I, I don't know of any. It, there may be. If so, uh, the, they haven't been really made public. I do know that uh, the Eastern District of Missouri, like now a majority of uh, courts, no longer solely rely on the voter rolls. You know, they use people who have state-issued IDs and people who have driver's licenses. Um, but again, you know, there, there are uh, a lot of outreach efforts that can be done, uh, and I just am not aware of that being done here in the Eastern District of Missouri. Hmm. So then we're kind of stuck with Batson, absent efforts like that. Um, is this something where courts of appeal are sometimes overturning, saying, hey, this all-white jury came back with this verdict. This jury is tainted because of that. Well, you know, it, it's interesting. Yes, it, it's happened. Uh, and it, though it, that right of appeal is only if the defendant gets convicted. Uh, so if it's a prosecutor, you know... As it, we have it, in this case. That's right. It, it ends with the trial judge's ruling, and that's it. Um, and, 
you know, so it's interesting. Most of the time, Batson is an issue uh, when it's the defendant. But in this instance, it, uh, you know, at least the public perception is that's really the issue and it's the prosecutor. So you, in the recent paper you wrote about this, you quoted the Illinois Court of Appeals where they lamented, quote, the charade that has become the Batson process where prosecutors have a, quote, series of pat race-neutral reasons for exercise of peremptory challenges. People have figured out how to game this system. Do you think this is just a charade at this point? Well, I, you know, I wish I could say it wasn't. I, I think the standard that Batson set out where it has to be the reason and, and not what an objective observer would say um, is just it's it's a bad standard. And there have been a lot of calls for different things, maybe do away with peremptory challenges. Or uh, I remember having a student once who wrote a paper about a peremptory inclusion, sort of let the defendant and the prosecutor get to say certain jurors sit unless the other side could strike them for cause, you know, to basically remove that peremptory. So there are a lot of different ideas out there. But I think until the Batson standard itself gets changed, like the state of Washington, where if race is a contributing factor, if that's what an objective observer would conclude, until that happens, I I think we're going to continue to have problems with Batson. Is this something where the courts would have to change it? Or could Congress take this on and, and shape how these things are handled? You know, that's a great question. Uh, I've been thinking about it in terms of really needing the U.S. Supreme Court to do it, but there may be a congressional fix, uh, though, you know, then we run into the problem of of getting, you know, bipartisan agreement in in the U.S. Congress, and it's not something we should hold our breath about. Hmm. So I want to address one other thing. Uh, There's a quote that I dug up from an old James Bond novel. It says, once is happenstance, twice is coincidence, three times is enemy action. I had this quote stuck in my head as I was thinking about this. You know, we're we're maybe at the level of coincidence for Scott Rosenblum and, and his fellow defense attorneys. Maybe not. Maybe they've crossed over into they're clearly looking for an white jury here. If they're doing that, is that unethical on their part to have this as a strategy? Or is that just the necessary zealous defense of these clients who have behaved in ways that that might shock and appall normal people? Well, you're going to find people arguing both sides of that question. Uh, I I think there's a strong case that if that's what the motivation is, not not just a strong case, uh, an excellent case, if that's the motivation and then they lie to the court, oh, no, Your Honor, it wasn't because of race, then they definitely violate an ethics rule because you have an obligation of candor to the tribunal, to the judge. And so if you lie to the judge about what the real reason is – now, the unfortunate thing is nobody gets inside somebody's head to see, you know, are they really – lying. Uh, And, you know, people are good at at self-rationalization about things that you do. But like I said, I think you'd find people arguing both sides of that. Interesting. So this case, uh, we now have another white jury, all white jury sat in this case. The last time this happened, there was an alternate juror who was a a black woman who ended up getting ushered into this panel because there was a um, one of the jurors had some family reason that they had to quit. I understand that cannot happen in this case. The alternates are also all white. Do you think we're going to see the same verdict here? I, I'm, I'm not going to second guess it, but I will tell you this, uh, and this is something statistically, if you look at it, that when you have a case retried, 
uh, prosecutors oftentimes do better than they did the first time when you get a hung jury. And that's because now the prosecutor really knows the extent of the defense case. Uh, the prosecutor in, in this case, Carrie Costanton, she's an excellent prosecutor. Um, and so I wouldn't take, make any bets on this. Yeah, and I think another point is there's even more evidence the prosecutors have this time that they did not have last time. Some racist text messages, some of these things. It's going to be very interesting to see how this one plays out. Uh, yeah, I definitely agree with that. Well, Peter Joy, thank you so much for joining us today and, and sharing your insight. Oh, well, thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Black babies cost less. Just three days after this accused shooter shot a little boy, he walks free, making bond on Tuesday. It has this family angry and confused. And I'm trying to figure out how he got a bond that was so low for trying to kill my kid. Arnold Daniel trying to figure out why Ryan Lee Wen is out of jail after allegedly shooting his son Kobe. It's all on video Saturday afternoon on Candlewood Lane. You'll see kids playing, hear a gunshot, then Kobe realizes he's hit. Lee Wen allegedly fired through his front window. The bullet went in Kobe's arm and out the other side. Right now, he's not even processing exactly what happened. You know, he don't realize how close he came to not being here. Um, but I realize it. 29-year-old Lee Wen is charged with assault with intent to murder. He's apparently had issues with neighbors in the past, and this time, Dad Arnold suspects Lee Wen was mad. Kobe's bike was in his yard. I'm irate, really. I mean, I can't. I can't function and I don't know what to do. A Washtenaw County judge gave him a $10,000 cash bond, which he made Tuesday. This is him walking out, picked up by family. The prosecutor's office shocked at the low bond. They're filing an emergency motion to get it changed. A judge's order not to return home, but it's a piece of paper, says Arnold. I'm scared for my family. You know, but I, I'm scared for them because I don't know what he's capable of. Reporting in Ypsilanti, Jessica Dupnak, Fox 2 News. Gus T, the black O.J. Simpson. Okay, so I went just to record the audio segment <clears throat> about this six-year-old non-white child being shot by another non-white person, so-called Asian. Uh, you know, if you check local news online sometimes if they show the video right they'll give like a countdown they'll give you five seconds or so and then it'll just immediately go to a different news segment frequently it'll be a, another local news segment from something in the last couple days ago that's what happened this time this is the immediate clip that was on autoplay i am concerned but not paralyzed a three-minute voicemail rant laced with death threats and inflammatory racism. We just killed every um, you know, might be a good world. Anyway. Threatening uh, to kill me, uh, to have me shot, um, to kill my children. And, you know, I'm not a violent person, but I think I could slit your throat in a minute. 
State Representative Cynthia Johnson from Detroit got the message Tuesday in her car. With that one, I literally had to pull over to the side because it was so shocking. Now an FBI and state police investigation to figure out who's behind this. I wouldn't even think, I wouldn't even think that, I, would, I wouldn't even know how to tell a person those nasty things that they said. One of several death threats, 8,000 scathing messages Johnson received after sitting on the House Oversight Committee last December regarding election fraud. After those threats, specifically a voicemail about being lynched, she posted this video thanking supporters. It didn't get much attention until the end. This is just a warning to you Trumpers. Be careful. Walk lightly. We ain't playing with you. It's that part that culminated in the state rep being stripped of her committee duties. Wednesday, she tells Fox 2 we should be able to disagree without taking it to the level of threats. I want the world to know that this little black woman over here is going to continue to fight for the people, period. Rep Johnson says she got a text message from the governor empathizing with her situation. As far as that criminal investigation, we're told it's making headway. Jessica Dupnak, Fox 2 News. Canada. We should move to Canada. Looking no more than his 20 years of age, a scrawny Nathaniel Veltman appeared from Essex Middlesex Correctional Center wearing an orange prison-issued outfit and a mask for a brief virtual court appearance Thursday morning. Nate Feltman, as he called himself, showed no emotion. Shocking, given the enormity of the charges he's facing. Four counts of first-degree murder and one count of attempted murder. After police say the London man deliberately ran down a family of five, killing a 15-year-old girl, her parents and grandmother, and leaving a 9-year-old boy orphaned, allegedly targeted because of their Muslim faith. And a picture of how Veltman became increasingly difficult and argumentative has emerged from his parents' divorce documents filed in 2016, in which he blames his mother for his father's situation. In it, his mother stipulates that she wants the children homeschooled until the completion of grade 8. Nathaniel, her eldest child, who is a twin, disagreed with homeschooling his siblings. Matters have become so stressful with the applicant that at times she has to lock herself in her bedroom. His father writes, Nathaniel's anger with his mother is primarily due to her attempt to prevent Nathaniel from having any contact with his dad. As a result of that hostility, Nathaniel has retained his own lawyer and voluntarily removed himself from her parental control and is living with friends. At the time, he was just 16. In the settlement, it states Nate will not be unsupervised with any of the younger children. There were four. The father must also ensure that Nate does not use his phone in any inappropriate ways, while the parents are also ordered to use their best efforts to encourage Nate to pursue therapy. Global News reached out to Veltman's father, who issued this statement. It was with utmost shock and horror that I came to hear of the unspeakable crime committed last weekend. There are no words adequate to properly express my deep sorrow for the victims of this senseless act. As this investigation is ongoing, no further comments will be made. Now, back in late 2016, when his mother filed for divorce, court documents stated that Nathaniel Veltman 
was suffering from some mental health issues, specifically obsessive compulsive disorder and depression. For that, the affidavit, state, the affidavit stated that he was on an antidepressant and he was also attending counseling. And at the time, he was no longer being homeschooled, but he was going to high school in Strathroy. Now, many today had predicted and speculated that there might have been terror-related charges added. That did not happen, but Veltman will be back in court on Monday, at which time those charges could be laid. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, June 12, 2021. So I have been told. This is our weekly compensatory call in. Dial in if you have thoughts, observations, questions, suggestions. Uh, the number 720. 720- Seven one six seven three hundred. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Number again seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Few things, uh, several things before we uh, get to the callers. Uh, number one, uh, we should be here on Tuesday. It is for sure still white guests only. However, uh, I think I think you might be listening. I don't have the switchboard right in front of my face right now, but I believe about the beginning of 2020, a uh, retired firefighter in Florida called in. It was on a compensatory call in, I believe. And he was telling us that one of the young fellas that he works with, all the young folks that he does, the mentoring program and then the football and all that. I uh, said one of the young folks uh, that he mentors, a teenager. I had committed suicide and I believe it was uh, on a train track uh, down in Florida and I just remember being stunned and uh, there have been many reports uh, since then this I believe like I said was at the beginning of 2020 and there have been reports almost on a monthly basis in the past 18 months or so talking about a lot of younger black people committing suicide, the whole COVID-19 shutdown and lots of folks having their whole academic program disrupted for the last year and a half or so, meaning graduation or all kinds of milestones for young people. We talked to some of the young people who've been dealing with all kinds of difficulties with all of this. So it's been traumatic. White supremacy, racism is traumatic anyway. And then everything around what we've endured over the past, and then not to mention all these, you know, instances of racism, white supremacy and seeing all that. So it's been a lot to handle. Anyway, the report last week, or uh, maybe two, two, three weeks ago, WGBH in the New England area, Massachusetts, they had a panel uh, of black people on to discuss this matter. And one of the guests uh, was Mr. Joseph D. Feaster, uh, black male. And he was on, he was talking, uh, his son, black male, committed suicide in his 20s. 
and he was talking about you know things that he just wasn't you know wasn't mindful about or didn't process as oh wait a minute this maybe was a sign or you know that something was wrong you know that he maybe needed some help or you know I could have tried to reach out a little bit more not that you can you know correct everything hindsight is always twenty twenty. but he uh, when I spoke with him he said that he considers it a uh, metaphor he said he considers this his ministry exact word uh, in terms of alerting uh, particularly alerting other black people uh, about mental health issues and particularly uh, for parents uh, just to be mindful, things to be alert about with your children, questions to ask and he said especially during this time period because it's been so stressful and lots of different things but he should be here uh, on Tuesday, uh, like I said first thing when I heard that report I thought of retired firefighter and what he shared and then we talked about it with other folks over the past year and a half or so and I thought man this is important, it's still white guests only but this is important. Um, yeah, this is important. Mental health issues are definitely important. Uh, and talking to children, because, you know, we talk about how uh, t- all of this terrorism and for older victims of white supremacy, seeing all of this has an impact on us. Uh, one of those last reports that we played, <clears throat> that was a six year old up in Michigan, Ips- Ypsilanti, I think that's how you say it the town up there but that was a six-year-old who was shot could have been killed easily just trying to get a bicycle so seeing these types of things that was on television it wasn't like you know that was someplace hidden he could have seen local news just like i did any child could have so um just seeing those types of uh events all the time uh seamlessly as it's been over the last year so that is traumatic in addition to everything else and seeing your family members and parents stressed and all the rest of it so it's just a lot to process uh talk with your children uh, about white supremacy racism uh and mental health seeing how they're doing checking in on them it's been a rough uh existence under white supremacy racism and then acutely this past year and a half very difficult but that'll be Tuesday. Uh, Mr. Feaster, mental health, uh, I guess parents especially. Uh, he does this, as I said, trying to make sure that parents uh, are mindful. So I guess especially uh, black parents, attempted parents, uh, victims of white supremacy. We will be here on Tuesday. Also, uh, the segment in Canada, global system of white supremacy. Now, a 20-year-old. I almost did the rewind. I said, nah, I'm going to leave it alone. Uh, but a 20-year-old who deliberately uses his uh, vehicle to kill these uh, people 20 years old like wow we've had a lot of these cases even down here in the US I believe the shooter at the FedEx facility in Indiana I believe he was like 20 21 years old very young now I don't even think he was 25 years old Uh, Mr. Hold Brian Hold I believe was his name uh, who shot and killed those people a number of them non-white people uh, at the FedEx facility where he was formerly employed, this white killer, uh, that's popped up repeatedly. Uh, wait, even <laughs> man, the instant I believe our caller in Florida, not retired firefighter, brought up the case last week uh, where the young urchins in Florida, I believe one of them was 12 and the other was 14. They were in foster care and they went and got an AK-47 and a shotgun or shooting at enforcement officials like, man, this is not forget all that about, you know, it's it's old. It's the Trump's, you know, it's the Donald Sterling's, it's the Paula Dean's. You know, we just got to get rid of these geriatric racists to the eh, 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 wrong. We got 12 year old 
foster children, white 12-year-old foster children who are packing. Anyway, uh, global system of white supremacy. Pay attention to what happened in Canada. And they had people who were bragging. They had the young white fella. And did you hear that? How they tried to give all these mental health excuses. They got the, uh, what do they call it? Affluenza. That's what it is. They got the affluenza defense waiting. You know, it's been stressful. It's been the year of the Rona. And my parents got divorced. And I'm a young white man. And been locked down. I can't go outside like I want to and everything. It's been stressful, you know. Affluenza, the Canadian version, is coming. London, Ontario. We had that program on racism, white supremacy in London, Ontario. Uh, that was like 2016. Had to pull that one up from the archives, but that was about five years ago. We were talking about racism in that specific area, global system. Anywho, a uh, list of, of things to get to from the audio segments and just in general. I will just say quickly before I get to the audio segments, man, uh, what you eat critically important uh, we talked about food in a variety of different ways we're supposed to have Dr. Ruby on the program her you know, father passed away and everything unfortunately uh, just a few weeks back but diet is critical and that's one thing I can say this week as most have been in the system of white supremacy uh, absolutely terrible but one thing that is helpful consistently having really nourishing food uh, to try to combat all of the toxicity uh, and terrorism uh, of the system, to not compound that uh, by just ingesting a lot of poisons and chemicals and edible substances that have no nutrients at all, uh, to try your best uh, to avoid that, uh, eat healthy things like, wow, just <laughs> every day uh, this week, uh, just lots of really yummy plant-based uh, deliciousness fresh fruits and vegetables I posted pictures uh, on my Facebook page facebook.com the or facebook.com forward slash the problem is white people uh, but we had what does that make because I got my walk too I just I've had my walk about 10 days wow anybody out there if you know because I've heard so many folks who said you know they don't like eating vegetables and uh, they just don't have a good relationship with vegetables. They're not comfortable uh, cooking vegetables, especially having vegetables be like the main course you know, of the meal uh, and not just some sidekick to a burger or turkey or chicken or fish or whatever it's going to be. Get a walk. It's a lot of other things that you could do that would help that process in uh, helping your relationship to vegetables and really enjoying them every time you sit down to eat. But a walk greatly changes the way vegetables taste uh, it's a totally different uh, type of cooking that is fast food like that is healthy fast cooking walks uh, that is high heat uh, low time cooking deliberately de uh, designed to be that way you should be done in like five six minutes if this is supposed to be like a stir fry type of a thing high heat low time cooking spectacular I love my I made I didn't even like sweet and sour pork remember that one that's one of the favorites right staple when you go to Chinese restaurant they load that that's one I suspect often is loaded up with uh, high fructose corn syrup uh, frequently some sort of sugary agent that you don't need and or uh, the oil and all that you know 
in addition. Uh, but the main was the uh, high fructose corn syrup and ridiculous sugar. And then it's got all that, you know, porky pigginess uh, in there that you do not need. Shout to North Carolina and uh, Mr. Reed, all the black people suffering down there with hog feces uh, just so that we can have sweet and sour pork. Anyway, I was never a fan. Uh, of that dish like I have uh, been an absolute talk about pig I have absolutely uh, hogged down wolfed down scarfed down my share my mom's share my father's share (laughs) like a whole lot of people's MSG filled Chinese food in my time yes sweet and sour pork was not one of them sweet and sour cauliflower wow battered can have the whole texture I think it could probably fool some people because it's got the whole golden uh, exterior and uh, the sauce tastes exactly like it does without all that nonsense and unnecessary sugar and salt and chemicals and all the rest of it like I said I never loved this dish I made sweet and sour pork twice in the first sweet and sour cauliflower. Excuse me. There would never be pork in my wok, but I made sweet and sour cauliflower twice in the first seven days that I had my wok and I'm looking forward to making it again. It was that I put the pictures. The pictures are there. You got to have the pineapple in it. Most of the time that I had sweet and sour pork, God awful back in the day, it did have pineapple in it. That makes a huge difference. Just you can look at that. All fruit, cauliflower, pineapple, and then everything that's normally in it. I think red peppers, onion, just all vegetables. But wow, easily one of the the best meals that I've had uh, this spring. There are lots of ways that you can have fresh fruits. And it's summertime, fresh fruits fruits and vegetables go to the farmer's market I'm hoping to go to the farmer's market uh, tomorrow blueberries are in season everything is in season it's summertime watermelon I had my watermelon smoothie this week the frozen watermelon smoothie there's no reason to have a Vitamix unless you're going to make frozen watermelon smoothie I can end my whole food diatribe White people did not just realize the importance of eating well today. I think we talked about this with Nutricide, Dr. Layla Africa's book, Worst Ever Still, not even close. We talked about this then and saying, man, Whole Foods has been around for almost 50 years. Vitamix is currently celebrating their 100 year anniversary shout to Ohio they so proudly brag about being from the uh, Buckeye State in fact I think that's why the base color of the machine is red and black Buckeye you know anyway but 100 years and the Vitamix is all about whole foods plant based all of that they have a special century cookbook for the Vitamix and all the tastiness that they've cooked up over the last 100 years you don't have a system of white supremacy racism by accident and Adolf Hitler I believe was a vegetarian might be an error but you don't have a system of white supremacy racism by everybody just eating bad food that was something we said from Nutricide this would have fallen off a long time ago we wouldn't have a system of racism if that were the case it is not they're going to Whole Foods for a reason to continue mistreating us foot on our neck now get a walk the segments let's see some of the news reports that we heard oh I lost my note page here we go 
Okay. The oh, that's not even the right one. I did misplace my note page. Let's see if I can find it really quickly. Did I miss it? Miss it? Let's see. Not so I'm taking up a whole lot. Oh, there it is. Had too many note pages up. All right. I'm so thankful. Uh, Callie Crawley. We normally play reports. She's also Massachusetts area. Two shouts for New England. WGVH. She does a weekly uh, segment on WGBH, uh, black female journalist, Callie Crawley. And that was her segment at the beginning this week. She talked about uh, the numerous. Now, she was just talking about it in the Boston context, but she included it's way beyond Boston. Numerous black athletes have been subjected to this. I really I almost played the sound clip going all the way back because it's been so many folks. Uh, it could have been uh, Jackie Robinson. Uh, it could have been Hank Aaron. Uh, they had all kinds of segments when he was about to break Babe Ruth's record talking about Hank Aaron recently deceased Hank Aaron uh, where he was subjected to all kind nigra this and nigra that and Babe Ruth is the greatest and what are you doing breaking this white man's record and ran you know the white people in Boston about Babe Ruth like my goodness or maybe you don't know but wow they get really excited about that white man Babe Ruth in the Boston New England area but uh, it's long history uh, of this sort of uh, racist conduct and I so appreciated Callie Crawley identifying this as workplace violence all of it what happened to Russell Westbrook uh, fans throwing in Philadelphia brotherly love they say throwing uh, popcorn on him uh, the fella in Boston I'm so glad she named him and then it's workplace violence call it what it is let's not pussyfoot and oh they were just excited because they did the same affluenza lame excuse come on and say oh you know they were just excited and they've been inside so long we've all been cooped up because of the rona and then we didn't have sports and all that so they're just excited and it's the play and, and, and wrong and the black misandry of it that all of this to continue to be happening in a league that is dominated at least in terms of population of the players demographics by black males consistently they're not doing this directed at Luka Doncic no 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 no. only the Negro males are the ones that we're spitting on and throwing things at and all the rest of it and even when they got to the end they said hey will it continue to allow this happen I think she said that they quoted Damian Lillard uh, who plays right down the road literally from Gusty Renegade in Portland uh, said that Damian Lillard said until a fan does this to the wrong one and I thought no white supremacy racism still wins we've seen this before many times anytime a black male athlete goes into the stands up police are going to be called probably going to be that black male athlete who's going to be the one that gets arrested charged ask a run our test millions of dollars lost and all the rest of it no even if you get to get a few licks in as they said nope still gonna lose have to understand the system and for workplace racism have to maintain your composure could have easily played this for the program yesterday workplace racism uh, let's see next got something in my eye uh, I literally in Wedgwood North Seattle I literally am right at 35th the Seattle Audubon Society is about 15 blocks from where I'm sitting at right now literally I knew if you had asked me at any point during the last 12 plus years of the cow's existence if you had said hey Gusty I will give you a thousand dollars right now 
if you could tell me where the Seattle Audubon Society is without looking, just tell me where it is. I would have law. I, I couldn't have guessed. I couldn't have got you close. It is literally 15. I walked by today. <laughs> I walked right by today. <laughs> I have to go in to see if they have a, a, a new catalog uh, of names uh, so that they don't have Negro Sparrow and that sort of thing. Uh, Nigra hating Robin and all the rest of it. Incidentally, we've talked about this before. I think it's in Dr. Marimba Ani's Yurugu, where she talked about that as another component of white supremacy racism, where you have to brand everything. It's like a dog metaphor, dog marking their territory. We have to put your name on everything. Like we can't even just name the birds for, as they said in the segment, name the birds for their attributes. Call it a blue jay because it's blue. I'm not just looking for any excuse to put my name uh, on something that that's just another component of white supremacy racism. And then they turn around and get mad. The Negroes have got our names now. Anyway, let's see. The next one. Now, I just mentioned Portland, Damian Lillard, right? Okay, so Oregon, they played the segment. And they talked about uh, the white woman, Marsha Hilber. Uh, she bought property and they said, oh man, it might mess up the property values. Got these Confederate flags, got this Confederate flag on the garage door here. And we're trying to be all politically correct Portland and all the rest of it. Like, are you serious? <laughs> like, I have never, ever heard of property values being damaged because of racist memorabilia in the area. Never, ever, ever. Much less... They continue with the whole segment and she says, oh, man, Marsha Hilber, she thinks that her grandfather was in the KKK. Hmm. I am not surprised. If anything, when I heard that, I said, now, see, Gussie Wussie, doesn't he say all the time, white people cannot. (laughs) Racist man, racist woman racist child let's do it that way because they like to white people somehow just becomes white men white women white men and white children cannot be ignorant about racism why do you say that Gus because Gus says man are you saying that they don't know their grandpappy and their grandmothers and their aunts and uncles and mothers and fathers and cousins who practice white supremacy racism is that what you're saying I don't think so even if they're in foster care exactly what she just heard what she just said I think my grandfather was in the clan why on earth would you say that let's get the details what did you hear what have you seen where's the evidence not ignorant about racism white supremacy and then they didn't just leave it they didn't just leave it with the grandfather same segment in Oregon they said man my uh what you said my, my my what was it the uncle my uncle is a redneck in the best possible way. That I would like explains. You can just sit and give it to me. Even what do you mean when you say redneck? I think that might be a metaphor and then come back. What do you mean a redneck in the best possible way? They got lots of different ways to avoid calling someone a racist. They'll say a right winger, an extremist, a redneck, like bigot. They just go on and 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 on. Anything but a racist white supremacist. And incidentally, that is also that whole segment really 
ex- excellent illustration of what's the term racial narrowing where they'll try and make it seem like the racists are just this handful of people right here just this fella over here with a confederate flag and just this fella over here generally be white men just this fella over here who was in the Klan 50 years ago and just these 10 people who voted for Donald Trump these are the all of the racists in the whole world right next segment uh, now we moved to California. We're going right down the coastline. Boom, boom, boom. So we get to California. They had Andre Perry on the program, who's a guest on the cows, white guest only. He's a black male. He did the uh, quote, there's nothing wrong with black people that ending racism won't solve. Excellent quote. He was a guest uh, in the spring of last year. He was on KPCC, California, and they were talking about allegedly trying to help get black people housing. And they said curiously that somehow through the shenanigans and in the paperwork and all of this that somehow as opposed to hooking up the black people and getting them a house they don't do some kooky reparation program where it's we're going to get housing for black people and and all of that it's the bank still owns half and we got curious laughter and hmm even Mr. Perry seemed to have some suspicions like what the bank still owns half like don't we have a long history of racist shenanigans of white people taking back black property yes we do Tanahasi Coates wrote about it Beryl Satter wrote about it family property that was on the program in 2015 yeah long history you couldn't have thought of a better way where the bank doesn't continue to own half of the property that couldn't have been a component of reparations we can't give you a whole 40 acres on a mule but here's the other half so that you have the whole house and we'll figure out the other components so that you, we couldn't do something better than that in 2021 no they even gave the statistics they said the gap in housing for California 75% of white people own their homes 39% of black people 43% of so called Latinos I thought it was black and brown people why wouldn't it be the same it's not black is still at the bottom back of the boat bottom of the bus back of the bus bottom of the boat back of the housing market they had tacky metaphors were throughout the segments this week as it is most week but for that segment specifically they said the housing market in in California is like a nightclub you're waiting outside in a line where you know you'll never get in and uh, black people are at the back of the line apparently 39% homeowners worse in some areas he said Mr. Perry let's see uh Last one I'll get before we get to the metaphors. The segment about fertility rates in Italy I thought was really important. That's been the entire year, and it's been widespread. Uh, They've had lots of major publications. The BBC, all throughout the world, white-dominated press outlets have been talking about fertility rates. Fertility rates. And lots of different reasons. And they've even said that COVID-19 made it worse. uh, That that, you know, I guess maybe traumatized more people. It made them think, oh, I don't want to get pregnant right now. Things are so crazy. And the finances and all the rest of it, that that just made it worse. Uh, But it's been so many reports. Again, wow. I would really appreciate hearing Dr. Welsing's thought. Is this being done deliberately uh, to increase white people's commitment, focus to white supremacy racism? Is this an accurate statement of facts? Uh, which you would expect the same thing, the white response, but I mean, all over the world. And 
I don't know if people were paying attention. I'll give you my thought process behind this. You can let me know if it was logical or not. I could have rewind. They got to the end of that segment on the BBC about the fertility rates in Italy, some of the lowest in the world, they said. Major problem in European areas. Didn't say white people, but I mean right there. And they got towards the end and they said, man, you know, somebody, we don't have, we have uh, some of the birthing wards where they only have like one new baby or whatever and they're contemplating closing it and all this stuff because no children are there uh, so they get to the end of it and they had the white people that were outside and they said well we're just trying to focus on other things and be appreciative blah, 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 and they're outside and you could hear them tending the goats I don't know if it's just me you all can please say Gusty I don't know what's up with you maybe you haven't got enough vitamin D but you're talking crazy please let me know I'll hush my mouth I'll mute and won't say anything more on it but man having that goat in that segment there and them talking about fertility rates it made me think of bestiality because you have all this talk uh, in, in my view a component of this fertility rates is there's so much uh, sexual confusion and deviance being promoted uh, where it's anything but male female yeah why not male goat yeah <laughs> let's do that too we got a little bit of everything else in there what they got the goat yoga right like i said please you can let me know gusty you are a little wacky I, normally i guess you try to follow logical what have you today you're straining a little bit that is not about bestiality they just had the goat in the background no problem my fault i'm just maybe we'll talk a little crazy but man that was the first thing i thought of like whoo and again, Dr. Welsing, could we have Dr. Welsing? Man, I miss Dr. Welsing. Anyway, uh, the metaphors, there were bunches of them this week. Uh, the segment uh, where they were talking <clears throat> uh, to the black male uh, at NPR, uh, Mr. Farrell. He's the principal. I forgot to make sure I get his uh, name mentioned. Reverend Farrell Duncombe full name, black male victim of white supremacy, where he said Rosa Parks was his Sunday school teacher. Isn't that wacky? Um, lucky should say it that way fortunate to have the great the legend Rosa Parks um, but in that segment he said that his mom when he was acting up in church his mom gave him a look that could knock the wet off water we had a bunch of them let's see they, they come back to the water so when they were talking about the segment in St. Louis which I wasn't even informed about these white officers who beat up a black who was uh, was it a black off-duty detective I think he was either undercover or off-duty uh, not in uniform they beat him up and now they're going on trial like I didn't even hear about that case black male privilege have they been protesting and hashtagging with this black fella's name anyway when they were in the segment and they said they were talking about when uh, these attorneys deliberately moved to get rid of black jurors, which is a common practice in the system of white supremacy. They had several metaphors. They said they know how to rig the game. They know how to game the system on this one. This is not a game. This is supposed to be the justice system. I thought we're not playing Monopoly or whatever it is. I thought this was I mean, we're talking about in a court of law. Some of these cases, it could be the death penalty someone going to years for 20-25 years which essentially could be the death penalty you could be killed in prison all of these serious issues this is not a game then they came back the other in the same uh, segment St. Louis Public Radio and said well this attorney you know if he, he keeps words keep these allegations and they keep ending up with these all white juries if it happens again and then the person goes in and said well why did you you know strike this person so well, I didn't like their eye color she said oh you'll really be in hot water then huh not criminal activity 
subversion, not even just, oh, you're really being troubled in. Nope. In hot water. Hmm. As I said, the metaphors uh, were abundant uh, in the segments this week, as they are most weeks. Uh, If we could make an effort to be precise, regularly racist, they use words to confuse. Won't be a racist, as I said, it'll be a right winger, a redneck, whatever that means. Some other bigot. Yeah. They will also take two separate concepts totally unrelated and suggest that they are identical exactly the same Uh, victims like myself we've been exposed to this nonsense for a number of years Uh, often we are still learning sometimes it's just that we don't have logic to articulate our views completely Uh, as such sometimes it's all right if you need extra time to think process get your thoughts together that's totally acceptable Uh, to the best of our ability if we could be precise exact specific about what it is that we want to say Uh, I will prompt about the metaphors analogies all of that much obliged Uh, if you could take about five minutes to share your thoughts observations that would be grand Uh, if you have extra thoughts going to take more than five just make sure everyone gets at least one chance to share and then you can add your additional commentary Uh, if you know you're in a noisy environment also if you could use your mute button that would be super helpful just so that we don't have to compete with a lot of uh, background noise Uh, if you could kind of maybe get to a quieter area share your thoughts and then you can go back mute your line that would be grand number again 720-716-7300 the code 564-943-POUND press star six one if you would like to participate see if folks have uh, observations thoughts commentary first uh, on the segments and or other thoughts things that have happened last few days or so Uh, if you have commentary to share a line should be open let's see folks are spectating I reckon we're definitely not doing this I noticed yesterday uh, where workplace racism people did the same thing where nobody talked and then we got close to the end and then hands went up and then we ended up having to go overtime we ended up going 15 minutes over we are not doing that this is not a spectator broadcast so if people want to hang out and think that they're just going to wait till the last five minutes and then decide that they need you know time to warm up to share or think of something to say or Whatever it is, we are not doing that. Let's get your hands up if you have thoughts to share. If people don't have any thoughts or observations, that's fine, too. We can all get on with our Saturday evening. But, yeah, we are nipping that in the bud. That That's happened throughout the content where people will wait until the last minute and then decide. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Now we are ready to roll. I just needed three hours to, you know, get myself warm or get my thoughts together or whatever it is like let's be a bit more efficient unless folks really do not have any thoughts or observations on what they heard what went down in the last couple weeks or so while people are getting their thoughts together presumably if they have anything to share uh, you can invest as opposed to being a spectator the blog racism-notes.blogspot.com racism-notes.blogspot.com Listener-supported counter-racist 
Radio. PayPal button is in the top right corner. Much obliged to all the folks who have invested, kept us rolling for 12 plus years. Uh, Hope the Cows has been, continues to be worthy of your time and energy. Uh, We're also uh, at Cash App, uh, linked on the blog. It is cash.app forward slash dollar sign the cows. Again, much gratitude to all of the investors uh, who have supported, kept us broadcasting 10 plus years, hopefully providing accurate information about white supremacy, racism, what it is, how it works, what it means to be classified as white and things non-white people can, should be doing to solve this problem as soon as possible. Uh, We also have our wish list at Amazon.com under Gus T. Renegade. Feel free. Check out uh, any of the items and such that are listed. Again, much obliged uh, to all of the folks who have invested nabbed items over 12 years, 12 plus years, 12 plus years. If we make it to February, it'll be 13 years. So much obliged. Uh, And we'll be here on Tuesday again. If we have parents listen in not to be hopefully uh, morbid or what have you, but mental health. I think we uh, have talked about that in the adult context quite a bit, uh, especially over the last uh, 12 years or so uh, in terms of how difficult it's been and all the rest of it, man, for children, that is certainly the case. Like man, so much has been disrupted. We had the children on the broadcast earlier this year, and they were talking about you know how they haven't been able to see their friends and all the rest of it, not being able to just get out of the house and go and do sports activities and all the rest of it has just been man like traumatic is an understatement, putting it mildly uh but yeah, I think Tuesday should be super important, Mr. Feaster um. Yeah, he said he, you know, feels like this is super important. He always appreciates being able to chat it up with other black parents. So Tuesday, looking forward. Uh, let's see. Uh, caller in Florida. Uh, if you have commentary, line should be open. Proceed. Yes, sir. Uh, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners, and callers. Um, I wanted to start out with uh, the segment about. I think they were talking about the the uh, the naming of the different species of the birds. Uh, it just goes to show how white supremacy is um, prevalent in many different things. Uh, and there are just so many different types of names of how they uh, or of how they name animals. It can be after someone's last name and you might not really know the origin of it, but that was an insightful segment about that. And with colors alone, um, animals in different categories uh, are pigmented in different ways, but they still find it to name it after some white person, it seems like. Uh, so I'm not sure who may be uh, uh, engaged in the process of, I guess, evaluating that or, you know, what names they're going to change it to. It'll be interesting to know uh, 
what ideas or concepts they come up with because it would make sense to uh to look at the the features of the animal um and just use that as uh something to reference into what name you're going to come up with um my my next one is uh i wanted to mention really quick on I purchased some um, colored pencils, um, and there are quite a bit of colors. And <laughs> the uh, the first color, right? It's it's a white color pencil, and now they have like a certain color system, and the, with the pencils, and the first the first pencil, the first color pencil is white, so. I'm doing a swatch of the colors in the first color is K 52 and the name on the white color pencil is brilliant white, brilliant, like intelligent. It's called brilliant white. All right. Uh, you know, and when I got to the Browns, it's cocoa Brown, deep mahogany, shaved chocolate so it's a lot of interesting um names for the colors i wanted to mention that and one last thing um uh the the segment where they were talking about the they were using the term hacker and the the cyber attacks but just in those words it sounds like they're talking about something that a white person is engaged in doing uh, why not call it terrorism? Like that's that's the thing I was thinking about. I don't think they use that word. Uh, so when it's a white person, I suspect or that they may know about that's engaged in these crimes, they will use uh, mild, more mild terms than if it were someone darker, someone not white. So I think that's another way that. Uh, white supremacists practice racism as well. Um, yeah, because uh, I know they they mentioned Russia, you know, a lot. And when you think Russia, you think people who are uh, white, pale skinned. So um, they definitely are very skilled with the terms that they use. And... Uh, that's all I have to share. Thanks for allowing me to speak. Much obliged, caller in Florida. Important point about the bird sec not that that's the most important thing in the system of white supremacy, the you know, names of the birds and all that. We have to change the name of the woodpecker and all I'm just saying, it's another component of how the system works, but in that segment where he said uh, the metaphor. They said, you know, we start changing these birds' names. And I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of them, they were named after white people who endorsed slavery and all the rest of it. And white people are supreme. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay. You start going around and you're changing all the street names. People get confused. They don't even know, you know, which direction, which street to go down. Now, that is true if you change the street names. Uh, but changing the names of some birds... And change the names of the streets are not the same thing. 
that's number one that's why I talk about those metaphors uh, number two I mean dang they have had that discussion I think in Richmond they just changed the name of one of their major streets there to Arthur Ashe because it was named after some racist confederate general uh, what have you. people said the same they had all kinds of lame excuses they're like oh my god I gotta pay thousands of dollars to get my sign changed for my business that's on this street and that's got this nigger's name on it and all this other stuff why is it that racism white supremacy is so etched literally into everything like we can't put a street up we can't name a woodpecker without it being on a reference to somebody who thought poorly of negras and mistreated them directly and or mistreated them uh, directly Ben Tillman that's what, why is that why is that such a consistent part of our world of people activity all areas of people activity it's not just one thing it's not just one region this is all over the world where they have the same thing they in South Africa you can go to culinary where it's got to be man maybe we shouldn't call these uh, kaffir limes anymore they don't say nigger down there they say kaffir maybe we shouldn't call them kaffir limes anymore we should come up with another name and then they got all that for the nigras right where they got all these wacky terms and they named the birds after all the racists and they named the streets after all the races blah, blah, blah. okay now we get to the colored pencils brilliant white like we don't have just bright white brilliant wow like uh that's what don't they, that's what they say in class don't they he is a bright student wow that's what they mean brilliant smart white wow now I'll just say if you're a child Dr. Welsing metaphor that hits your brain computer at any age you get that set of colored pencils and you're looking at it K-52 brilliant white hmm and my cocoa shavings they don't have brilliant black hmm Hmm. Brilliant white. Hmm. That hits your brain computer. Repeat and then then you come back, right? So we got K fifty two brilliant white, and then you come in, you have a lot of melanin, and they say, Ooh, and they hop over the desk and say, Ugh, the leader of the devils, get back. <laughs> That's your day in the system of white supremacy. lots of black self-respect lots everything around us is just either you're a nigra and horrible you should be beaten and killed and all the rest of it you're white you're brilliant innocent fair much obliged caller in florida same type of thing he was saying too with the names of the criminal activity they're not called terrorists the folks that are doing these hacks and such they're brilliant get on that computer and press a few buttons and shut down a whole co- brilliant brilliant you're not a terrorist I don't think they called that fella uh, in Canada what's his name make sure I get it Nathaniel Veltman I don't think they called him a terrorist either I think they just said he plowed into uh, this family and killed the this Muslim family and it's going to be charged with murder I didn't hear anyone saying terrorist attack in Canada I've heard that with other folks when it's been a non-white person who rammed a vehicle into some people and, and killed several folks and that sort of thing uh, let's see. Other folks who dialed in with the number. Let me give out the number in 
unmute lines. 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, let's see. Other folks who dialed in, hand up. Line should be open. And I'm here. Non-Clemson grad. Greetings, sir. The land of Pitchfork Ben Tillman, previously mentioned. Absolutely. <laughs> Pitchfork. Um, let's see. So definitely a couple of things um, from those um, earlier stories. I suppose, um, the first one that caught my attention was the one about housing affordability and, you know, how people are just having a hard time affording housing, how the housing costs are just continuing to go up. Um, and, you know, people are unable to either, you know, move out of their parents' place or find their own place as a young person. Um, you know, once upon a time, you know, housing was just considered a thing that you're supposed to, you know, a place where people have shelter, you know, store a couple of things to live, you know, be safe. Um, but I was, um, I forgot what I was listening to earlier today, but, you know, this started to really change around, like, um, the 1980s, where housing started, stopped being considered a place to simply live as a, you know, a simple resource like water, and started being treated as an investment somewhere for people to store and make money, um, and that really just messed it up for, I think, everybody for the most part, well, depending on who you might be in the society. Um, so instead of people buying housing because, you know, they need a place to live now, they, people are buying housing because they want to increase their own personal wealth. Uh, I remember having a conversation a while ago with a friend, um, and, you know, he talks about the idea of, you know, buying, being able to buy multiple houses, you know, I think he's on the sixth or seventh, whatever that number might be at this point, and, you know, being able to build wealth. And one of the ways he talked about it was the idea that as a person who's buying up a whole bunch of properties, um, you know, he's able, he's not just simply, you know, increasing his wealth. He's also offering a service um, because he's um, allowing, he's renting the housing to people. So, you know, he's building wealth for himself, both equity on those properties, but the people who he's renting to, you know, maybe they want housing as well too. And because, you know, uh, people like my friend, you know, even though they think they're providing a service or anyone for that matter, uh, think they're providing a service, you know, they're able to get multiple properties because they have a little bit more money than other people. And they buy all the housing. The people who just want to get one can't even get one and build any kind of normal uh, well. So you know, one person builds, let's say, um, 500k in personal wealth versus five families being able to each get one house, one house and building 100k each. Um, um, uh, taxes versus sustainability. Um, this is very interesting. I, uh, this measure uh, it might be a little bit of workplace racism. Um, you know. Part of it is that um, taxes and sustainability. So one of the most important things is that, you know, when you own property or you own um, a house, you know, you have to pay taxes on those things. Those taxes are also used to pay for multiple things, like, you know, the infrastructure that runs to your house, you know, the sewer, the water, the street that allows you to, you know, so you can drive to work wherever you need to go, et cetera. Or the, the, um, the government services from, you know, uh, police, social services, fire, fire departments, um, planning department, whatever department you could possibly think of, you know, all that stuff comes out of your taxes. And one of the things is very interesting is they talk about the, the cost of housing constantly go up. Um, I find it hard to believe that something could be affordable 
and an investment at the same time. So, for example, if you're someone who's looking for a new place to buy or rent, do you prefer those prices to be as low as possible so you can, you know, save money for yourself? But if you're someone who owns something, you want your cost, I'm sorry, you want the value of what you own to keep going up. So there's a, uh, easily a contradiction within the, um, the housing market for that reason because, um, you know, well, basically it's, you can't have these two things operating in the same place. Either something is cheap, or either something is cheap, or it's valuable. It can't be both, and because it cannot be both, um, and people want valuing their housing values to go up, people who are just simply looking to get into the market or simply looking for an affordable place to rent, you're simply priced out of the market. Um, I heard about the story about the housing appraisal for black people and having to get, um, you know, white people to stand in for them. And that one's also very interesting to me, interesting to me as well too, because um, I juxtapose this to a fact that you know, black people, even though I say a whole bunch of black people might have issues getting correct appraisals for their housing values as well too, I think it depends on the black people that you talk to. So, for example, if you're a young black person who might be trying to buy a house and then you want to get a good appraisal because you want to add to your own personal wealth. When you get those low appraisals, I, I I understand why you might find that to be a problem because you feel like you're you know you're being robbed of wealth. But if you actually talk to a couple of older black people, like one of the um yeah I live in a black neighborhood um where I live in South Carolina, um and the housing values are very low and you know they're on fixed income. They don't want you know and we're about to go through another um five year appraisal period, which is you know uh, mandated by state constitution. Um, as an older black person on a fixed income, you don't want your taxes to go up. Because obviously that has a, an effect on your income at that at that point in your life. So I do find that to be a very interesting juxtaposition um, when it comes to housing appraisal values. When you're, I think, depending on what part of your what stage of life that you might be in. And I heard what uh, Mr. Andre Perry said about the solution for um, subsidizing homes up to forty five percent. Um, by the government to make them more affordable. You know, one of the most interesting things about this is that governments, um, you know, one of the reasons I always try to get you to get uh, Mr. Charles Marone to come on the show, and unfortunately I, I, I botched that a little bit myself by telling him about the cause before just simply inviting him, was obviously cities need, you know, their um, citizens to pay taxes to pay for their services. And cities are expanding their infrastructure faster than the amount of people um, that um, that are actually moving to a region. So you could have, let's say, you start with 100, and then all of a sudden it becomes 200. Let's say you have roads, you started with 100, and said the amount of roads doubling for the amount of people that's there. Maybe your amount of roads are tripling, quadrupling, and then forth. And basically, there's a whole bunch of people spending more. T um, you know, people who are there are spending more money, paying down more infrastructure than the amount of people who are actually moving in percentage-wise. Um, so. Governments, because they keep expanding the infrastructure simply too far and don't understand this, a lot of people do not understand this, um, they have a vested interest in seeing those housing values go up because um, they need those housing values to go up to um, pay for the cost of their constant expanding borders um, and infrastructure. Um, but um, that is easily unsustainable. One of, um, one of the best examples of this, of course, is the city of Detroit. Um, Detroit didn't just you know, collapse because a whole bunch of people left it. You know, A city that was once 2 million people, one of the five most populous cities in the United States to now one of the not even a top ten anymore because it went from two million to about seven hundred and uh, about seven hundred thousand um, and lost all that population. It wasn't just because a whole bunch of people, let alone black people, left. Um, it's um, it, um, it's cost finally caught up to it. Um, and I think let's see, COVID. 
report and the job search during that one family that was getting married, I, I think it's very interesting. That was unfortunate. One of the things my friend did was a study was a study on like um, the types of jobs people do and um, whether or not you get COVID is really just simply based on your job. You know, obviously there are jobs where you get to stay at home. Um, so you're less likely to run into someone, let alone catch COVID. But, you know, black people tend to work in jobs where they're constantly being exposed to not just people, but constantly being exposed, um, well, yeah, exposed to people. And therefore, they have a higher rate of COVID. And then let's see, um, the U.S. buying vaccines for the African countries. I find that um, interesting because yeah, um, whether those people take the vaccines, of course, that is up to them. But, you know, even though they're the U.S. is buying the vaccines, they're using um, American manufacturers to actually, or European or white um, manufacturers to produce the vaccines. Um, I'm not sure about the African continent, but I do know for a fact that they do have a couple of um, pharmaceutical manufacturers. Instead of paying the white companies the money to produce the vaccines, why not simply just give that money to the African nations to ramp up their production of the vaccines themselves so they can produce it and have it in perpetuity? I juxtapose this to um, Chinese policy. So, for example, um, uh, back in 2008, China started with um, zero high-speed trains um, and went from 0% um, high-speed trains to having 68% of the high-speed trains in the entire world. And one of the ways they did was is that um, they do this with most industries, with foreign investors, is that Chinese companies will own 50% of whatever industry comes into that country because this allows China to develop. And, you know, I, you know, relating that to back to the pharmaceutical thing, here is, um, you know, African countries simply getting things not for free. Well, yeah, sort of for free to a certain degree, but not being, being given the opportunity actually not just, um, I'm sorry, to develop the resources themselves going into the future as opposed to China who uses their markets um, to make sure that they own something so they can continue to um, um, produce that thing in perpetuity. And a lot of white people and white investors are getting really, really upset about this is become, because um, China's policy is more one of um, not just seeking profits, but actually trying to improve the lives of their citizens, while white investors who are usually um, looking to simply profit um, at the expense, no matter whatever happens in the market. Um, and this is a bad model as far as white people are concerned that the Chinese are currently engaging in as far as, um, yeah. Chinese policies are hurting white um, profitability. And with that, I'm going to change it over to my wife. Good evening, Cal's listeners. Hi, Gus. This is Miss C. And I just have a, a couple of things to report. Uh, here in South Carolina, our Governor McMaster's um, he reinstated the South Carolina death penalty um, with the electric chair or the firing squad. So um, the 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 person on death row gets a choice. You know, they get the choice between the electric chair or the firing squad. And what they said about the the firing squad was there was. Um, there would be like eight to ten officers, um, so they're using a, the local police force wherever wherever the crime supposedly occurred. They would um, they would bring in police officers from that jurisdiction to volunteer in the firing squad, and um, no one no one would know who shot the 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 um, 
the person, they wouldn't know who shot the, the so-called criminal um, because some officers would be given blank bullets and then um, one officer would be given a real bullet. And I, I just thought that was really interesting um, given, given the relationship between um, uh, people, civilians, especially black people who, who tend um, to make up a larger portion of, um, of inmates in the jails, in the prison. Not sure about statistics um, on, on death row, but um, I just found it interesting that they're, they're using um, police officers to do it. Um, and it's like state-sanctioned police brutality. <laughs> um, so we brought back the death penalty. And the second thing is Governor McMaster, McMaster's, he passed an open carry law for the state of South Carolina. So I think it goes into effect sometime in August. Um, but this state will now become an open carry state. And we, we already have a lot of, um, a lot of people with guns. And then after COVID, you know, the number of women who, who uh, applied for their CWPs, concealed weapons permit, as well as the number of black people or non-white people who've applied for their, for their CWPs during COVID has increased exponentially. And the number of first time gun owners has increased exponentially for people who, who like live in the suburbs and want to um, feel protected and safe. So it, it will be interesting to see the response um, when it's black people having guns um, on them, on their persons, out, um, out and about in public, and how that will, if it, if it will, um, I guess, stir up a lot of the, the fear within white people because it's black people who have the arms. And with that, I will conclude my report. Double dip, South Carolina, Miss C, non-Clemson grad. Thank you all so much for staying up late uh, to share with the cows. Uh, let's see. The return of the firing squad. I saw that they were, they had been for years, they had been having all these problems and certain pharmaceutical companies said that they weren't going to make the potions and things to do the different uh, death row. I guess it was some sort of lethal injection and such. They weren't going to manufacture those chemicals anymore. So they were having difficulties. So return, like go really old school. <laughs> like no, Or I guess it is a metaphor, but really go uh, Neanderthal with it. Uh, firing squad. And I don't know what's all that about. Like we're going to, we're going to do some pretending. There's so much hypocrisy in the system of white supremacy. We'll give, fake bullets to some of you. So nobody will really know. Like, is that supposed to that way? We won't feel guilty about this. Like what in the world? Like, come on, come on. Like, let's just get it over with, man. If y'all are going to do that, you could, why not slip rat poison in the person's food? Why not do that? I mean, come on, joke around with things. Let's see. Uh, non Clemson grad. Now he was saying with the housing, uh, component, I thought that was, uh, 
I guess at least compelling to think about having the investment component as opposed to just people, I'm going to place to stay, let's get a house as opposed to, well, I'm going to get six of these, maybe eight if I can. And <laughs> this is my, my, my nest egg and hope I can rent them out and the property values will continue to go up and all that. I'm contrasting that just with uh, this week. Uh, I didn't play a news report on this, but I mean, this is uh, June 10th, so two days ago. This NPR senator presses landlord over report. It evicts black renters at higher rates. Now I'm just skipping to this one part. Uh, okay. The letter cites reporting by NPR and Bloomberg about findings by the nonprofit private equity stakeholder project that companies owned by Pretium filed to evict more than 1,000 residents during the pandemic. The group also found a disparate impact on black renters where you have megalis, where you have corporations who are buying up these properties to rent them out. Sometimes doing this in areas where deliberately targeting black people. Uh, that's what it said. It looked at four counties where Pretium owns hundreds of single family rental homes in each comparing two mostly black counties in Georgia with two mostly white counties in Florida where the median incomes are similar. But the report found that in two white counties, Pretium has been filing for eviction against 1% and 2.5% of people renting homes there. By comparison, they filed to evict 9.5% and 12% of their residents in majority black counties in Georgia. So this sort of environment in addition to, and it's both of them, it's you have this sort of whether it's an individual, which will more likely be a white person who can afford to get multiple properties or corporations who ah, can get bunches of them and then rent them out to black people and kick them out and all of that they've been doing for a long time. But they, which family property, Beryl Satter, we talked about this long history uh, of White people have lots of creative ways of taking property from black people and or making sure they don't have property. The beach segment in New Orleans, we talked about that, too. Incidentally, I was pulling up the statistics. Uh, Miss C, she was talking about the executions in South Carolina, and they're going to get police officers. Uh, Walter Scott, right? That's South Carolina. Remember that? So they're going to get police officers to volunteer for the death squad, death penalty, so you can do these executions. So according to justice360sc.org, 39 men on South Carolina's death row as of January 19, 2018. Five death row inmates have had their convictions and or sentences overturned and or sentences overturned and are awaiting resentencing or the outcome of the state's appeal. 56% of current death row inmates are African American. I am certain black people do not make up 56% of South Carolina's state population. 41% are white. 3% are Hispanic. Black and brown brothers and sisters. Let's see. Uh, other folks who dialed in, uh, if you have commentary to share before oh the guns make sure I get that in uh, she uh, missy she said that I guess a lot of I'd been saying that lots of folks have bought guns non-white people black people females males old people young people many 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 people have guns what I've just said is yikes that is a scary environment uh, on all accounts uh, to just have like especially a lot of new gun owners who might be agitated and stressed yikes uh, and the other component now, how do white people respond? Lots of black people having concealed carry. 
Philando Castile, Alton Sterling, the, uh, what is it, NF, not effing around, NFA, whatever it is, that organization might be defunct. Uh, even, in fact, there's a video, we played the report, there was a black male who had his uh, concealed carry, he went to Walmart, mistake number one. Uh, and I don't even think he made any errors. I guess that'd be the only one. He went to Walmart. But he went to Walmart and some uh, suspected racist white man saw his firearm. He tackled him, beat him to the ground, <laughs> jumped on him. This is a black male with a gun. The white man jumps on him. He tackles him, drops a few elbow smashes. He's got a gun, everyone. Duck. Ah, he's going to kill us all. Uh, and then after, you know, the security comes and they stop all this. And they're like, oh, wait a minute. This nigger's got a concealed carry. I think... Uh, I think he's legal. I think he did anything. In fact, uh, I think user are going to jail for assault for hopping on this nigga who is a legal gun owner. But I could see a lot of that type of thing. I'm going to see if I can find that incident because that we talked about it on the program. Like, man, even having a firearm as a black person, ooh, no sanctuary. Uh, let's see. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up, if you have commentary to share, uh, let's see. Try and get the switch. Yes, other folks who dialed in with a hand up, launch should be open. Proceed. Hello. I'm sorry. Hello. This oh, yes, okay. Um, hope everybody's having the best evening they can have. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I just always find it interesting when it comes to black people, like black people, we. We just can't get, you know, here's the money, do what you want. Here's whatever, do what you want. When it comes to the um, the vaccines, black people, and other poor countries, you can't just be the African, because most of them are poor anyway, so I don't, but there, I guess there are a couple of white countries, brown, quote, unquote, brown countries, I don't know, that are poor. So, you know, them. Um. The housing, again, from what I understand in this country, they just gave white people land. Oh, we need you to move out west. Here, take it, take it, take it. But we have to, well, for quote-unquote reparations, I believe, in Illinois, that was a loan. And then now this loan to make housing affordable for everyone, you know. And, again, that's for everyone. That's not just for black people. So, you know, good good luck with that, black people. Um the Second Amendment, I don't know if they, that was brought up on um, the California, how the ban on assault rifles has, is going to be lifted. That's going to be a problem. Um, the, I think you were talking about the name, the names of things. And that's, I mean, that's prevalent, of course, across several industries. I know a lot of times in the makeup industry, because I wear makeup. The darker you are, the more food-related your color is, especially with foundation. Um, you know, new clothing is beige. It is not dark. It is, you know, to me, if it's new, why can't it just be clear so people can see whatever they want to see or whatever you want to show them? So that's in a lot of ways. And I'm looking, I guess, forward to next week for the Juneteenth celebrations. I know... At my job, I think this is the first year they're going to celebrate Juneteenth 
And I noticed that because I was like, oh, I'm going to work on Friday because you could just usually, if the hours are available, you could just take them. I was like, oh, I'll work on Friday. And I'm like, I said, no, I won't. I said, oh, yeah, Juneteenth is, I guess that's Saturday. So I guess we're getting the Friday off. It's like, oh, great. So that's going to be interesting. I know a lot of, it's with the events of last year, a lot of companies, well, not a lot, but some companies, some larger name companies are going to, I guess, celebrate that for the first time. And we'll see in the midst of, quote, unquote, Pride Month, how that works. And probably other cultures may start, oh, we want our day and this and the other. So we'll see how that goes. Thank you. Juneteenth next weekend. I think in some places that's like an official uh, holiday where, you know, some businesses are closed and that sort of thing. So, wow. I uh, I shudder to think, like, to see, like, what what Juneteenth looks like at FedEx or McDonald's, like how does how do the corporate acknowledgement, corporate recognition of Juneteenth, like watermelon in the break room? Like I don't, uh, whew, man, I'll uh, be cautious over I guess the next seven days or so as all of that is going down, and for sure, like pride. That's that's I'm certainly way more aware. Oh man, I had pictures. Where's my? I took pictures. You reminded me. You reminded me. Color it. Much obliged, ma'am. Let's see. Did I get it? Let me see if I find my pictures. Let's see. All of the food. I had my watermelon smoothie. Let me see. There it is. Okay. So this was, I went shopping. I can't believe I forgot about this. So Capitol Hill Pride 2021. They have a, what looks to me like a sky blue unicorn with a gas mask on there's supposed to be a march and a rally uh, this coming sat like next week Saturday and Sunday and let's see there was one more here we go uh, black trans lives matter I have to post both of these pictures so this was all on the same po- uh, poll Stonewall was an uprising against police brutality and violence targeting queer and trans communities abolish the police and you can see they've painted the crosswalk in the background uh, the rainbow colors red you know all the colors Uh, and this is literally uh, about two blocks from where the black male was shot when they had the whole chop Capitol Hill uh, occupied uh, territorial with Chaz Capitol Hill occupied zone autonomous zone whatever it is uh, it was about two blocks uh, from where the black male was shot at those protests uh, this summer where they had all this plastered. And this is uh, all that whole zone. Capitol Hill is, is known as the like LGBTQ epicenter. And that'll be she talked about the marches and stuff that'll where all of that will be culminating. You got to end up there at Capitol Hill and shake it down and go party and all the rest of it, do some karaoke. Uh, but, oh, yeah, that'll be. I don't know about Juneteenth, but around here, it will be all about pride. Yikes. Have to hide out next weekend for sure. All leading up to uh, next week. Yikes. Um, see, much obliged female caller. Let's see. Other folks, again, don't wait till the last minute. Uh, if you have commentary, you want to make sure uh, you get in. Uh, let's see. Other folks who dialed in, hand up commentary to share. Proceed. Can I be heard? 
Greetings, retired firefighter in Florida. Greetings, Gus. Greetings to uh, everyone. Uh, first, like to just uh, speak briefly on your very first report. Brought back memories. I thought at first that someone was well, I said myself, well, somebody calling me while I'm about to listen to the cows. And, but by memory uh, uh, recharged, and uh, it was a familiar uh situation would that would take place if you were called Dr. Welsing uh a lot of times because she was she would be busy. Uh she her recording would come on and uh you would leave leave your your name and and number uh and uh and she will call you back. She certainly will call you back. And uh, to you know, to answer questions or whatever you were calling her for, uh, uh, I also miss her. Uh, she, uh, but her volume, her large volume of counter-racist work is documented. And uh, I mean, she was on the cows at least, <laughs> at least about what Gus about twenty-five, thirty times, uh, you know, alone. Uh, let alone talking about uh, all of the other uh, counter-races work that she uh, has compiled over her many years. Uh, Just unique in her uh, means of, uh, as a physician uh, in itself, uh, uh, as to assisting non-white people with... uh, developing uh, uh, a more healthier version of mental health. Uh, And uh, I uh, will always remember her uh, in that light, especially uh, in her calm, calm means of communicating with other people. Even, even in an environment where you can, you can sense hostility all around her voice diction would never change. It was always very calm. Uh, other than that, uh, another non-white black female uh, personal friend uh, that uh, transitioned uh, about a week ago, uh, she was amongst uh, several black females who uh myself and a few other black males in South Florida uh, as we were uh, organized in uh, attempting our counter-racist means down here in South Florida. And we met up uh, at a park with some black females uh, who would assist us uh, with a lot of works that we would do uh, featuring some events such as a Marcus Garvey Day, uh, a Kwanzaa Ball, uh, and uh, Malcolm X, a Malcolm X Day, uh, and we also we also organized a huge rally where Nelson Mandela was supposed to have shown up. Uh, it, it was diverted by uh, in, uh, by uh, the uh, white Cuban. Uh, 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 professional politicians down here at the time, uh, but nevertheless, uh, uh, 
the uh, ladies eventually formed an organization that they called Concerned African Women. And uh, one of the uh, leaders in that uh, particular uh, organization, uh, Miss Kiani Nesbitt, uh, passed away uh, about a week ago, as I mentioned, uh, suddenly from a form of cancer. I uh, just wanted to acknowledge her, uh, originally from uh, suburbs of Chicago area, somewhere around that area in Illinois. Just wanted to acknowledge her and her large volume of hard work over the course of about, as far as what I was associated with, at least 30 years. And uh, and that's all I'd say. Thank you for listening. Much obliged, retired firefighter. Uh, Miss Nesbitt, um, how old was she again, did you say? My apologies if I missed it. Oh, oh, let's see. Did I, are you still with us, retired firefighter? Oh, I, ha- I had my mute on. Oh. She was uh, 65, 66 years old. Oh, okay, okay. About two years older than my Okay. Okay. That's still, you know, we should be here a long time, long, long time. Like, uh, man, my, uh, condolences, her family, uh, friends, uh, folks that she touched over the years and going to help out other black people doing constructive things. It sounds like, uh, but condolences to, uh, the Nesbitt family and, uh, hope they have lots of, Great wishes. Sounds like she was doing constructive things. So should be lots of folks who. Uh, yeah, she she created she created uh, with the help of her sister and and uh, several other black females an after school program that uh, where they became paid employees. Uh, for, and it was at least about twenty five thirty years now down here in South Florida. Wow. Yeah. That is why, again, say it again, Dr. Ruby, her uh, father just passed away. I'm not sure what his age was, but this is not, you know, just so we can all sit around and brag what I put in my walk this week and how much kale and bok choy I had and all that. That's great and everything. But I mean, hey, all of this is about as much vitality as we can have, being as healthy as possible for as long as possible, uh, also that we can have the necessary energy to replace white supremacy with justice. Talked about missing, he started, I think, retired firefighter, talked about, man, Miss Dr. Welsing, many of us do. We want to make sure, hey, she was here, you know, into her 80s. We want to try and be here as long as we can and with as much vitality as we can. Eating well, taking care of ourselves, that is the goal in a system that is designed to have us doing the exact opposite. Uh, since I did mention it, is that accurate retired firefighter in Florida? Did you also mention about sometime in the early part of 2020, the young fellow who uh, com- took his own life, committed suicide down in South Florida? Did I get those details correct? Uh, somewhat. I, I didn't, I didn't know the, uh, the young fellow personally. Uh, 
but his mother was a, was uh, uh, associated with the uh, the mentoring program. I think I think a, another one of his siblings uh, was one of the uh, boys that we had uh, with us at the time. Uh, I don't think I, I I've never met the 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 person that you're talking about uh, directly. But uh, I think his younger brother was uh, in the uh, mentoring program. Yeah, he actually he actually was a, was a uh, had just uh, was accepted and was offered an athletic scholarship at the time also when he uh, killed himself. Strive for accuracy. Thank you for giving us the information in detail. Yeah, that is. Uh, mm. Talk to young folks. Just uh, be a ear, be receptive. It's been rough. Uh, the system of white supremacy in general is rough for all of us. But man, especially the last uh, two years, basically, make sure you chat it up with them. We'll talk to uh, Mr. Feaster on uh, Tuesday. He says that's a big part of, you know, what he tries to do with his time and energy. Talk to black parents and folks who have contact with younger folks just to be mindful, be alert. Make sure you're talking to them and are just receptive. If if they need help, they have at least one receptive place that they can go if they, they do need to reach out for help uh, for any assistance. Uh, I think we were talking about it last week in the context of sexual confusion might be important to remember it there too. I think it was mentioned might've been Irie or some of the other callers were saying to make sure for parents to make sure that these conversations, uh, when you're talking to you like your attempted or your offspring, your daughters, sons, uh, to try to ask questions, try to avoid being judgmental, uh, so that you can keep communication open so that they don't necessarily feel like they're being attacked, uh, so that they'll be willing to, to share, and feel like they're not going to just be judged uh, consistently for things, uh, even from a parent, can be hard. I know. Well, I'm not a parent, but I can imagine can be difficult at times. Uh, anywho, uh, other folks, comments they want to make sure they get in before we uh, wrap up last few minutes in the broadcast. everybody good again we'll be here on uh tuesday normal time 8 p.m eastern 5 p.m pacific mr feaster uh we should also be here thursday for the book club we just started brand new booked uh labyrinth uh by randall sullivan uh this is kind of connecting continuing with our whole series uh los angeles 1990s history uh so oj simpson geronimo pratt all that same time period the Kate or the book that we're looking at now examining the assassination of Tupac Shakur notorious B.I.G. Uh, connecting all of those to further LAPD racism and corruption while this wasn't uh, exposed how all of this relates to Rodney King O.J. Simpson all the rest of it uh, we just got started haven't even gotten to 
the murder of Christopher Wallace, Notorious B.I.G. We haven't even got to that part of the book yet, so uh, I am, in fact, I'm even more excited because this is a white author, and he's already come out, made it plain that no good O.J. Simpson got away with murder, and that influenced what happened in this case. So, if you read, were with us for Jeffrey Tube and O.J. Simpson, Tube and just back at CNN this week, white people don't get fired regardless. Um, yeah, you uh, should have a, a solid evidence-informed opinion of the Arenthal James Simpson trial, and then subsequently anybody, especially a white person who's coming out and saying, based on that trial and the evidence, O.J. Simpson got away with murder. Really? That'll be Thursday. Everyone satisfied for the day? We'll assume folks are good. We will be here uh, Tuesday, normal time. Uh, check Black Talk Radio Network if you have uh, questions or looking for updates. Uh, tried to reach out as well. I think non-Clemson grad to the white woman. Uh, was it Schmidt? Amy Schmidt? Angela Schmidt? Uh, but she talks about how dangerous it is for black people to be pedestrians and just being out on the road. Now, I think he sent this message even before uh, the attack in Canada. He killed all those folks, non-white people, Muslim family. I think he even posted that and suggested we get her on the program before that. I emailed her. We'll see if she's willing to come uh, chat it up with us. But, yeah, if you're going to be out and about, be alert. I've said that for a long time. Anywho, uh, much obliged for everyone tuning in. Hope it was worthy of your Saturday evening or whenever you are listening to the archives. Uh, sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. I feel very comfortable saying that's one Dr. Welsing would co-sign on a thousand percent. In addition to being sober, let's be buckled every time we are in a vehicle just doing the small things that we can to minimize contact with the Amber Geigers of the known universe. Uh, And as I just said, we need to be mindful about what is happening around us. We got lots of new gun owners, lots of new concealed carry permit owners like be alert. All of that said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person no name calling just the small things that we can do they were name calling black people all in the segment and what have you that's such a, a core component of white supremacy to just life unworthy of life the negras the coons and blah 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 to sit around and name call black people non-white people all day long no name calling small things if it's going to be brilliant white it is not going to be chocolatey this and all the rest of it Call that person what they wish to be called every time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing up. Thanks all for tuning in.
Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. Yeah. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my condition. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Yeah. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.